Good evening, wherever you are, whenever you are, welcome to the Knights of the Underground Table podcast. We are out of spooky season, and we are back into our regular, well, we're already in our regular rotation, whatever. You know what? It's my pick this time, and I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to talk about Albert Brooks's redemption arc on this podcast, uh, which Ryan gave me a questionable face just now. <laughs> so I'm interested to hear immediately what's, what's going to happen with this. Uh, yeah, I uh, am your host, John Garcia. Uh, with me, as always, is Ryan King. Uh, tr- trigger warning, Albert Brooks insinuates that touching Indians is something that every American should do. Um, <laughs> yes. But casual only racism. sexually, though. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. Casual racism from Albert Brooks is something we already expect at this point. Two movies, we've already had it, so unsurprising <laughs> it's in the third. Uh, and the other voice that you hear is, of course, Michael Dixon. What's up, guys? Uh, yeah, very much did not like looking for comedy in the Muslim world. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Almost anything. Was <laughs> um, yeah, in this uh, this episode, we were talking about another Albert Brooks film. Uh, we're, to- we're talking about one of his, I would say, his better films uh, looking. Was it? It's Lost in America. Not looking for comedy in the Muslim world. Uh, yeah, we're talking God about. Damn it, John! Are we doing that one again? <laughs> Surprise, everybody! We're going for a two for here. Um, yeah, we're talking about Lost in America, 1985s, uh, starring Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty. Julie Haggerty, you might uh, know from Airplane. Um, that's what I remember her from. Uh, and it's directed and written by Albert Brooks as well. Kind of thins out who I have to remember uh, played a role in this production. It also stars Donald Gibb, who is in Bloodsport. He's like JCVD's sidekick in Bloodsport. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this movie is kind of a, a story in the middle of Reagan's America uh, about two, um, a husband and wife, uh, a couple that decides in their 30s that they want to uh, quit both of their jobs and uh, live the American dream uh, in a Winnebago. Uh, just cruise across America and eventually find a nice home, maybe a lighthouse to buy. Touch some Indians. Touch Indians. Touch uh, Indians. Which <laughs> the adapted term now is touch Native Americans. Uh, that's still part Indigenous. of our American I don't know that that's <laughs> really any better, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and they decide to do that, but uh, a lot of things go awry in the process of them trying to live this great free dream. Um, it is one of Albert Brooks's kind of uh, satires on uh, American life in the 80s, this kind of idealism that people lived under with like the corporate dollar, kind of like, here's what, you know, your life should be like, here's what your retirement should be like. And uh, these expectations that kind of come with that. Uh, and the entire time, it's just a comedy of errors um, that kind of sees uh, Brooks's character, especially coming to terms with the fact that he kind of liked where he was before he tried to uh, go into the free spirited lifestyle of the Winnebago owner. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, this is my first Albert books movie that I saw a while back. Uh, it was on criterion channel and it kind of got me into watching other Albert Brooks films. Yeah, didn't you go through a phase where you just like for a week or two, you just walked watched every Albert Brooks. They were movie. all right there. It was yeah. just easy. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I like his comedy style uh, with the exception of looking for comedy in the Muslim world. Uh, I enjoy the Albert Brooks movies that have come out of uh, the late 70s to 80s to even the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, all right, well, 
I kind of chose one that didn't do so well. Uh, I'll choose one that uh, has a better impression and see what, what y'all think. Um, but yeah, I uh, enjoy the, the humor in this. I enjoy the non-actors. I think that they give fantastic performances. I think pretty much everybody in this movie, the exception of Julie Haggerty and Albert Brooks and uh, the other gentleman that you mentioned from Donald Sport, Gibb, yeah, yeah, are uh, are non actors, um, at least along Gary the way. Marshall. Actor is a strong Sorry. word for Donald Gibb, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Marshall in the casino. Uh, yeah. That oh, was yeah. actually like I liked that. <laughs> we're we're yeah. previewing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Ryan, uh, share your feelings about this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. yeah (laughs) (laughs) which which uh yeah i watched it with darla um and she was like yeah it was better than that other the comedy in the muslim world she was like yeah that was about her take on it ringing Um, endorsement from darla as always (laughs) yes yeah always (laughs) um yeah it was funny like there were definitely parts that were funny to me and things that i laughed at i did enjoy the bit in the casino with Gary Marshall like that that was kind of funny of just like that was Albert Brooks at like when he's good like kind of his like peak just rambling on um worked well in that scene similarly like the argument that they have at the dam (laughs) where's the damn food um like that was good of like an actual emotional high but the movie kind of it's like relatively clear kind of what's going to happen like how it's going to unravel I guess it sort of has something to say at the end of like them kind of just being okay with their lives the way they were. And just, I guess they learned that they're not cut out for anything else. Um, but like, yeah, I, like that's it. It was funny. There isn't anything that to me like stands out as like, Oh, I will remember this joke or this bit, you know, for a long time or that the whole concept was so funny that it like elevated above it. Something it was like airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like, it's fine. You know, I, as I said, I think I said to Darla, like if I was flipping through TV and I stopped and I watched it afterwards, I'd be like, well, I didn't have a bad time, but it wouldn't be something that I would come back and be like, oh, yeah, you remember you remember this like Lost in America? Oh, man, I, f- I forgot about that thing is probably more what I would say than like, oh, you should check this out. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's my take. Yeah, I feel pretty similarly to you, Ryan. Um, I feel like Alec- Albert Brooks is just not really on my wavelength. Um, I, I usually like Albert Brooks when he's acting in other people's stuff. Like he's great in taxi driver. He's great in the Simpsons and he's good in drive. You know, yeah, he's good in drive. He, he appears, you know, as multiple amazing characters, you know, over the years in the Simpsons and, and they're all great. It's, you know, Hank Scorpio being probably the most memorable, but, um, you know, I, I typically like him when he's in somebody else's work. I think I maybe just don't love his comedy styling. Um, I think there are lots of interesting ideas in this movie where, you know, there's this concept that, you know, corporate America is this soul sucking institution where, you know, you just can't like it's so hard to actually be successful in it and to get ahead and to have a a happy life. Um, I thought the first act set up a bunch of interesting concepts there. The second act, like I actually named it into three acts, John. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Oh, uh, right. Stole my job. It's just locations. First act is LA. Second <laughs> act is Las Vegas. Third act is Arizona. Um, but like the Las Vegas <laughs> section, I felt like kind of sabotaged and undermined a lot of the things that the opening act was setting up with this idea of, hey, we're going to take our nest egg and we're going to go out and live off of that for decades and try to 
you know, find meaning in the world and, you know, kind of uh, undermining that plot immediately was odd. I, I felt like, um, you know, I don't know if they're trying to comment on, you know, even if you're trying to have some fun, America's gonna like fuck you over anyway, or how exactly that goes but i felt like the movie sets up this idea of analyzing the corporate rat race versus just saying fuck it and going off into the world and doing your own thing and then it you know kind of does this plot thing where you know their nest egg goes away and all of a sudden they can't really have that conversation and i feel like i would have liked it better if either it didn't have that and they go out and try to live off on their money and they they don't find happiness anyway or if they just weren't rich in the first place and they're like, fuck it, let's just go and try to figure something out. Um, but I, I think Brooks's comedy is just so, um, I don't know, it's just awkward. And it feels like Brooks is in his movies that I've seen, I've seen this looking for comedy in the Muslim world and modern romance. And it seems like in each of those, he plays just maybe a heightened, more uh, neurotic version of himself. And he goes off on these rambling tangents and maybe there's some funny concepts there, but I kind of get a little bit bored with it and a little bit tired of Albert Brooks. He says like most of the words in his movies and he's just on screen so much. And if you like his shtick, then great. And if it's not your thing, then, you know, it's not your thing. But overall, I, I gave it an unenthusiastic thumbs up because I think there are some interesting ideas there. Um, that'll probably be fun to talk about here on the podcast. Um, but I, I didn't really love the movie while watching it. Yeah. So reading about it, Bill Murray was their original choice for the role. And then just he was huh. too popular and too busy at the time. So Albert Brooks was like, all right, instead of delaying until we can get was like Bill Murray, like, I'll just play the part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and thinking about Bill Murray in the role does bring a very different vibe to it than Albert Brooks in the role. And I kind of wonder, you know, how, how different that movie would be sort of like Bill Murray's sedated at times, mm -hmm. right. Of when he's kind of like down and out of it, there's a different impression to it. And his like, you know, when he's angry, like at the absolute max, like it would have been very different than Albert Brooks's, um, performance. Brooks is very whiny in everything that he does. And I just kind of get that grates on me a little bit. It's funny because yeah. that's like the point of a lot of Brooks's performances. Oh, I'm sure it to is. To be on that wavelength of yeah. like, he doesn't want to play a positive role or version of himself. He only wants to play one that is loathsome mm -hmm. um, or very self-righteous in his own way. That was like modern romance. He's completely annoying um, mm -hmm. with how obsessive he is about his relationship and like how he goes back and forth. This has a similar vibe of like he constantly doubles back and just will uh, either reduce somebody else's opinion um, to to kind of bolster his own, or uh, he he makes them say the thing he wants to hear and then immediately doubles back on that as well. And it makes him, and interestingly enough, like a villain of the movie mm -hmm. of most of the movies <laughs> yeah. that he plays this role in. Um, and I've always found that I guess from my perspective, I'm I'm fascinated with the sounding board of that of seeing a character that is supposed to be the main that you're not really rooting for. You're just kind of like watching them bumble through. I think that it, it heightens the comedy for me in an extent because you're seeing the misfortune of somebody that um, can keep you at arm's length, I suppose, with their behavior, like kind of lets you step back a bit and not be like, Oh, that's kind of sad. You're more like what the fuck are you trying to do? Um, yeah. I, I do see what, even in looking at it through that lens, like what Dixon was saying, the first, 
chunk of this movie, mm-hmm. I do think you're sympathetic to Albert Brooks. Like this mm-hmm. anticipation of something coming, the nervousness. Like I actually like the opening scene quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of have the gut irony that you know it's gonna crumble. And then when it does, you're kind of like, okay, and they've, you know, he's looking at it in this new way and they're going to go do this new thing. And then that immediately gets squashed. And then now he's the bad guy, right? Like you kind of, are you wanting them to fail? Are you wanting them to succeed? Yeah, you kind of get into this floundering middle of like, I'm not really interested in these people anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because you can look at this from a lot of different, yeah, y'all see it as this undercut. I see it as there's this, there's always this, uh, well, we're just talking generally about the movie at this point, but we can talk a little bit about kind of narrative points and beats, but, uh, in general, it, it kind of goes through this structure of, yeah, there's an undercut that immediately happens after act one, um, in which they lose the entirety of the nest egg, the exception of $873 or something like that. $802. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, I think that that kind of speaks to corporate America has always developed a plan around you work this long, like Brooks hits on it. Like I, I gave this company eight years of my life and like, he's going into this whole tirade against his boss at one point. Um, but it's always this, like you have a plan no matter what, even when you're dropping out of society, they have like this cushioned plan that they're not going to like go and sleep under the stars and live, you know, nomad land kind of life they are going to buy a Winnebago with a microwave that browns and live (laughs) in a pampered interpretation of that wild free dream, like easy rider. It has uh, this whole contrast of like, you're not on motorcycles, you're in a gigantic boat. Um, And to see them kind of have all these plans of like, well, here's where all our money goes. Here's all this other stuff. They're cut into free fall in a situation where the thing that they probably could have done or that they kept speaking to doing was embracing that. And they fight it the entire time because they've never actually wanted that. Like they never want that ideal. Um, they just want what they think is the version of that, that that's closest to their comfort zone. So for me, like that was the irony. And that was kind of like the comedy high that I wrote for most of it was that undercutting and that squashing was, um, cutting their parachute and watching them just like fall and flail. And it feels mean, I guess when I put it that way, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm watching you fail. But really it is like this to me, a commentary on what like the current kind of corporate environment sets you up for like this expectation that you'll work X number of years. You'll have this plan. You'll retire. Then you'll live your life at that point. Um, and even when that happens and you're forced to be in the moment, you could do nothing but bitch about how you wished you were in a different moment and you were living some other part of a life that you thought you needed or wanted. Um, so that was, that was kind of like, as my diatribe on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. No, I mean like it has that. I like, honestly, I was thinking about it afterwards. Like how long did they live off the grid? Like three days, four days yeah. <laughs> before they're <laughs> before just they like, came... fuck it. We can't do it back on the grid. Crawling back to your Wiener schnitzel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, like that's, that's funny, but if I think about kind of what you're saying of like watching the sort of comedy of errors, you know, you thinking about, um, National Lampoon vacation or, or mm-hmm. Christmas vacation, Christmas vacation has the same sort of bit here, right. Of like expecting this, you yep. know, thing that's supposed to come as Christmas bonus club. and yeah. And I'm supposed to be the person that everybody comes to their house and the family and now it's my role and all of that. And it's all a disaster. 
And so you're watching that disaster like unfold and, and you're entertained by all of it. But here I'm like, yeah, it's a disaster that unfolds, but it it's there is still something endearing in some of those other movies where things kind of just constantly, or, you know, fall apart as they go. Yeah. Um, that at least there's someone that you're kind of like, OK, you still root for them, even if they don't understand the situation. You're like, they'll come out of it or, or something here. I was just kind of like. Yeah, at the, at the beginning, it's interesting. But then once you're right, like once they hit bottom and it's just like you can tell, like, all right, they're not cut out for it. Yeah, I kind of just. Yeah, lost it. I don't know. Um, So you want to uh, walk through? Let's let's yeah, pick let's it apart. do a real quick kind of like <laughs> let's hit a few beats here in terms of what the first thing that we get is uh, a very long opening shot um, that kind of walks us through the house that. uh um, Brooks and Julie's characters live in, um, which is, uh, it's David and Linda, the name of them, uh, their, their couple's name. Um, so David and Linda's house just completely riddled with boxes. We're getting kind of like a, a we're getting a Larry King live segment. Um, they're talking interviewing about, a New York yeah. post critic who <laughs> mentioned this, the second movie we've watched in like a month or two where the fountainhead is mentioned. <laughs> and the New York Post critic is really pretentious. He's like, you know, I don't like watching movies with crowds. I like watching them alone by myself in a screening room at 10 in the morning. And, you know, I just hate these packed movie houses that, you know, I'm, I'm not susceptible to, uh, you know, like the whims of, of the crowd. I'll laugh if it's funny. I don't need an audience. And, and somebody calls in and it's like, you know, I don't like sex in movies. When are we going to get a good movie that doesn't have sex in it? Yeah. And he's like, oh man, the sexiest thing I've ever seen was the Fountainhead in 1949. <laughs> they didn't show anything. There was just these furtive glances and oh man, it got me so fucking hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like this guy is just turned on by fascism. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was, I'm curious to hear what you guys thought about that, but it's such a long bit at the beginning is like he's clearly setting something up here and i don't know if he's just commenting on you know uh, movies and critics in general as like you know having bad taste or uh you know kind of supporting bad inst evil institutions and and what they're doing in the movies that they're supporting or if this is more of a comment on the characters themselves but well i, I feel like there's a contrast there with you taking in the contemporary of when it was made um at like the peak of like reaganism and you're also have this uh new york post uh associate who's like railing against going to a theater while the entire time the movie's running there's a crowd in the theater watching this and like experiencing mm -hmm. it at that time so there's kind of this play of like um, hey, somebody said this shit. Like, what do you think about uh, that? It sort of plays along with um, contrast, using the audience as a prop, basically, to contrast and like help you kind of envelop in this experience of, oh, well, you're about to watch a comedy with a bunch of other people. Are you going to laugh along with them or not? What exactly is your experience going to be? Sort of a playful um, meta uh, aspect, I think, of the film and how it opens. Um, uh, when I, yeah, when I first watched it, I was kind of perplexed as to why that was uh, the, the kind of preamble that was put onto the rest of what happens. But the more that I think about it, the more I feel like Brooks just wanted to have that as an opener to really set the palette and expectations of like what the audience might experience. Um, I don't know, Ryan, what do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I kind of thought the, the, on the surface level was that like you're, you know, you watch the movie and this comedy might not be, 
for everybody and it it's up to you if you think it's funny don't feel like you have to like listen to everybody else around you on the just below that and i don't know if this was the intention the sort of uh a little bit of rubbing your nose at a critic right mm-hmm. that maybe albert brooks is like oh you think you're you know you're high and mighty about it or whatever but like you you know you like what you like like what's what is why does it matter and also the sort of like pretentiousness of the critic to say like i'm above this system of the movie theater and that experience or whatever but then the only reason people pick up the new york post and read your article about the movie is whether they want to go to the movie or not so your money is coming from that system and you claim to be somehow above it or better than it or whatever and like movies are at an all-time high in like you're in 85 it's a the Mm-hmm. pinnacle of movie theater money and experience and extravaganza and you're like oh but movies were better like back then or whatever but the only reason they didn't have big critics in every newspaper back then right so i'm like there's that under level where i'm like it's kind of the same thing that this movie ends up going through of like yeah you're in that same system and this is the only way you can operate you can pretend like you're above it but you're in it too yeah there there is kind of an emphasis too on this disconnect from a community like the just him and Rex Harrison, I think is the name of the, uh, Rex Reed or wasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. that. Um, but yeah, racer X, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Unbeknownst to the audience at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Where he's talking about not, he doesn't want to be influenced by a crowd. He wants to have his own individual experience and, um, selling that romanticism of like, only you can have this unique experience. You stand apart from everybody else. You have all these things that, you know, nobody else can have, uh, and your opinion must matter more than them. And to then have that transition into, uh, you know, we're going through the hallways of these packing boxes. We're kind of seeing, um, this is the, the American dream to pack up from one house and move to a slightly bigger house. Um, mm-hmm. and to have these, these kinds of things be yours and your achievements. Uh, and then we get a whole conversation that follows that where, um, uh, basically David is convinced he deserves this promotion. He has earned this promotion. Um, he's the only person who can have this promotion, this individuality that he, uh, this whole romanticism for his life, um, that he holds. So I kind of felt like there were some tethers there to it. Um, but I, I don't know. It's so it's left to so much audience interpretation. There's no reaction that David has to that broadcast. Um, it just kind of happens. Yeah. He doesn't even seem to be listening to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, after we get like that whole opening shot, I really do like some of the steady cam work in this, like the way that the camera they have some cool through. long takes that yeah. kind of yeah. follow behind characters moving through spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like we either get a long take or a shot from an outside in an RV. That's like the two types of shots we have in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just the back and forth in, in some of the conversations. Some ones yeah. and twos, yeah. yeah. I will say, I, it did make me think about the long shots in this movie, um, just kind of thinking back of like, okay, you still had to deal with chords, right? Yeah. Mm. In, in, in a movie like this. And there's some shots, especially when they're in the casino, where I'm like, it's not a set, right? They were in that actual desert inn, and they're having to like snake around these booths like an over and, and, and things like that to get the shot to stay. Uh, I was kind of impressed with some of those. Yeah. That camera work. Um, really, I don't know. It just, it's such a subtle touch, but, um, if you're looking for it, you notice it and it definitely, you can feel it. 
so kind of it's one of those things like when you're when i watched birdman i was like i didn't even realize there were four cuts because i just it felt so natural mm-hmm. and how it transitioned and all these other things it has a similar vibe to it yeah you're um, just walking down the hallway with him yeah right through through whatever it is yeah yeah um and uh we yeah after this like radio broadcast we kind of get it treated to david and linda's first conversation the first time we're ever exposed to david is he's just obsessing over his promotion at work to the point where he can't sleep and he really wants Linda to notice that he can't sleep. And David is attention starved. Like no matter what, this is just Brooks's characters in most movies are their attention starved in some way or another. Um, and in this one, it's no exception. He's just tossing and turning. And then Julie Haggerty kind of, you know, prompts him to, to tell her about what's on his mind. And he acts very dismissive and coy and like really just fishing for compliments uh, to, to get reassurance from her that he will get his promotion or whatever he's like maybe we shouldn't move she's like we just sold our house like we you should have thought of that earlier and he just wants to complain and just you know wallow in his worries and insecurities and she's like i don't have time for this bullshit i need to get to sleep like we sold the house we have to move (laughs) yeah and he's bringing up everything else under the sun about that too he's like but do we have to get our own movers it just feels like too much and like all of these points of contention that he didn't bring up before and is now just doing it out of, he wants to like win, I guess, a fight, uh, or he just wants to be right about something. Um, so they get into a whole argument over whether or not they're both too controlled. And this is kind of the first I glimpsed of, uh, self-awareness within, but not to the extent of like, kind of liberating yourself from the system. They're like, maybe we have, he's like, maybe we have been too controlled. Maybe we've, you know, been so prudent about these things. Maybe we should be riskier. We should take more chances. And then immediately he kind of subsides back into, uh, I want the promotion tomorrow. I want this. And, uh, Linda tries to kind of advise him and say, maybe you have been too controlled. Maybe we have been, she's trying to support whatever he's going through. Mm -hmm. He's not being very good about communicating it. (laughs) She calls him responsible and he's offended. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, what? You think I'm responsible? What? (laughs) You think I'm responsible. And then she says he's being crazy to which he, that's the kind of like bait he wanted. So he latches onto that and he's like, I'm going to go sleep in the garage because I guess I'm the responsible one and somebody has to watch the car or maybe it'll be (laughs) stolen. (laughs) Like just this dumb, he just flies off the handle immediately uh, in the most neurotic way possible. I do think that this is like, uh, yeah, I feel like the little back and forth here felt very natural. It felt like the kind of conversations, you know, that a married couple can have sometimes where like one of them, it's like, okay, this is a conversation we don't need to have, but someone just keeps trying, right? This sort of like frustration that Julie Haggerty has, like I really appreciated. Like this I thought was good. This was like a good back and forth. And I could kind of like get, the characters and get the moment and even like in Albert Brooks's whininess, the sort of just like uncertainty you as a human have before you make any leap, like up until that last second, you're, you could still potentially pull back. And, and he's like in that stage of like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, we were say we're going to do this. Everything tells me I should be doing this, right? This is what's responsible. This is what's right. Mm-hmm. And just like a little, maybe a bit of doubt, but also that like unfulfilledness, that they both seem to have uh, at their core of like, well, I got the car that was the best car. I got the house that's the right, you know, bigger house. Like I keep doing that, but it's like, 
It's not a car. But it's that's a Mercedes. all I'm doing. It's yeah. a Mercedes. Yes. <laughs> I, w- I definitely ran some inflation numbers on all of this. I was having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but just like the this materialism that they're kind of tackling with, right? He's never really talking about like, am I making the right decision to take this job or that job or do this with my life or whatever? It's just like, should we stay in this house or a bigger house? Should I have saved money by packing my own stuff or let someone else pack? These mm-hmm. are concerns of a rich person, yep. right? Of like stuff that it doesn't matter either way. The stuff is getting there. Like it's not really even costing you like all those things that he's whining about, just not really problems. This is that like, yeah, he's so far removed from other struggles that he has to find things to struggle with is kind of the point that he's at mm-hmm. in this yeah. consumerism. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, as he's like pondering that and picking a fight, it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, Linda is like completely settled and has been just, you know, riding that same wave with him. And one of the things I really appreciate is it doesn't all get dumped. You know, Orion has a problem. We all have a problem with <laughs> exposition dumps at the very beginning of a movie when they just need to tell you everything about this character or their relationship or that. We Albert Brooks only of, does exposition dumps in the final shots of his movies. That's right. <laughs> right there in the title card at the end. He just has to write up an extra uh, or an outro. And uh, yeah, here it's like we get this natural argument that develops and it gains steam. And over the course of the movie, we see these different peelbacks of the characters to sort of style of insecurities of what they have been harboring between each other um, on their own, any of that. Uh, and it, it's slowly revealed like in this sequence, he's just talking with Linda. He's confiding in her with a lot of his insecurities and trying to pick a fight and find what he can struggle about. But then later when he goes to his boss, because he's convinced he's getting this promotion, his boss doesn't give him the promotion. He goes on this whole tirade about how he asked every friend that he had if (laughs) they thought he should get it. And they said he was the only one who deserves it. (laughs) And you're seeing like more and more of the links that he goes to to find comfort in the current life that he's not fulfilled in. Um, These like other paddings that he gets. Like, I don't I haven't like texted Dixon or Ryan am I a good person at like midnight or something? <laughs> and there's never been that moment for me. You know, I, you wouldn't like the just, answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why I don't. Um, but it's just one of those things where like where I'm at in life right now, it doesn't matter. Cause I live off of the choices and actions. I'm, I'm actively self-actualizing all the time. This is my flex. There you go. It's my humble brag. Um, <laughs> but it's just one of those shit. things where I'm just not at that point where I'm obsessing or I don't feel unfulfilled i have a good time recording the podcast and doing all this other stuff and so for me to see that in him it's uh sort of this um it's a tragedy and at the same time being represented in these situations of comedy and to me that um carries through such an interesting sort of reveal for the movie like y'all were talking about the, the whole like act one setting things up i'm more interested in what links these characters have gone to beforehand or how they're trying to process this reveals more about the character to me in the moment. And that was what made it, what makes lost in America fascinating uh, in a way is I feel like Brooks is trying to get at two people in uh, upper middle class that are trying to make it in America that feel like things are, are much harder than they actually are for them uh, and trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. And, and that's sort of where my comedy derivations come from. But yeah, this, this whole argument just really goofy and it, feels organic and it flies off the handle so fast and before you know we're like at breakfast time it's like morning time and albert brooks is in the mirror brushing his teeth 
reciting what he's going to say when he gets the promotion, rehearsing <laughs> everything. What? Oh, that's more than I than you said it would be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. To the point where he's caught by Linda and he just immediately is like just a little caught off guard that she was watching him do that. <laughs> um, I like how yeah. she, she like calls him as like, what the fuck are you doing? And then she leaves. And then as soon as she steps out the door, he turns back to the mirror and he's like, where were we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And Linda uh, is probably the most for me. Like she's, she clearly loves David and David is an oblivious idiot to a lot of the things that she goes through. Cause they're going to, they were going to go to the house together, the new house and pick out tile. And he's like, well, I don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. I don't care about whatever's in. I know David probably will obsess about the tile in the kitchen after the house has you mm-hmm. know, been built. Oh and yeah. Paid for. There's no way he's not going to, <laughs> to question those decisions later. Um, but he only cares about what's right in front of him. He only ever looks at that. Uh, so we, we're treated to kind of a day in David's life and the day, the most important day in David's life so far. Um, as he, he drives his, he's had a very dull life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He's, he's right up there with Lawrence Gopnik. Uh, he (laughs) just, uh, has been, yeah, he's driving to work and his sob, um, and, uh, just haven't, he's like got a spring in his step. He knows today's the day he's going to get his promotion. He walks in to the office. Uh, I assume much later than anybody else. It seems everybody's already there. Everybody's already there. Yeah. He's like, I've got 45 minutes. Nobody disturbs me in my office. He says this to uh, his secretary, I assume. Um, And then just walks into his office and calls the Mercedes dealership and has a 45 minute conversation. He like waits on the phone. He's on hold for like 42 of those minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Gets on the phone with Hans, who is also played by Albert Brooks. What, Um, really? Yes. Oh, interesting. I I didn't catch that at all. Him having a conversation with himself. Yeah, it's billed as whatever Hans in the credits, yep. but actually was Albert Brooks. And he just, I guess he said like he it was an inside joke that apparently no one got for years. Yeah. And he finally was like, yeah, that's me on the other. I, I made that voice <laughs> up. There is no, you know, Hans Wagner or whatever it says in the credits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They have some pretty witty banter. He has a witty banter exchange with himself, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. Cause it, it's like David tries to, gain ground through the least aggressive means in his whining. Uh, it's, it's the most David tactic I've come to know from this character as he's like, do you do it with leather interior? And he's like, yeah, but it'll, it's going to cost like extra. And he's like, mm, I really wish I could get leather inside the car for 45,000. That's a lot. That's a lot for a car. He's like, it's not a car. It's a, it's a Mercedes. Um, but he's like, what does it come with? It's called Mercedes leather. It's vinyl. <laughs> yeah. That I like they actually cut a, seen some more of that the like mercedes leather the sort of like again the sort of facade of what you live in of like hey it's this great thing it's it's leather it's technically not leather we just call it leather (laughs) (laughs) yeah um (laughs) that's i loved his line too where he's like you want a little leather and i could throw some shoes inside if you want like (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah he sits on that whole call he wastes how much time just doing that this Uh, i was gonna say the like Brown with the beige interior. Yeah. And I've been I've been watching uh the Dahmer TV show and it, it's all like wood paneling and everything inside <laughs> yeah. all the houses or whatever. And I'm like that like 1980s, late 70s aesthetic of just everything is brown, beige, off-white. It's completely <laughs> muted and unoffensive. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, um, he's on that call until he finally just hangs. He doesn't even hang up. He has to just like deflect a bunch of salesmanship. He sends it to his secretary because he can't even. He, uh, right, he doesn't he have the really, courage. Yeah. To, to shoot him down and say, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to sign on it right now. I need to think about it. I need to talk with my, my wife about it. Um, and uh, yeah, then he goes down the hallway. We get treated to a very lovely uh, one take walk down, going through the winding curves. He's going to get his promotion. He's so excited for it. Um, and he goes into his boss's office. There's another man sitting there named Brad. Uh, Brad is my favorite extra. One of my favorite extras in this. <laughs> his reaction is great. Um, and he sits down and starts talking to, to his boss. Who's like, yeah. Uh, oh, you know, you know, probably know why we called you in here. He has like a whole lot of ramp up to it. He's building to this moment. And, uh, David's just like, yeah, yeah, I know. When are you going to give me the job? What, what am I going to, what am I going to be senior vice president, a senior vice president? I promise you right now, I'm going to do these things for the company. And he's like, well, we don't need you as senior vice president. We gave that to, you know, so like you're much too valuable to be senior vice president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? Uh, uh, he's like, you're going to be working with Ford. We're going to get Ford and it's going to be great. And you're going to go to New York and you're going to uh, work on the ad campaign with Brad. And immediately, not Detroit, New yeah. York. <laughs> don't know, if you're going to do it in New York, why can't you just do it in L.A.? That seems, seems yeah. weird to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, David is um, in shock that he has not gotten the promotion. He thinks he misheard or that this is a prank. Who's going to come through that door? You son of a bitch. You did this before. <laughs> and I can't believe you're going to do it again. I agree. Um, he's like, wait a minute. Who's senior vice president? And he's, I forget what the guy's name is, like Paul or something. He's senior yeah, vice yeah. president. And he's like, well, what does that make me? And his boss just goes, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Great response. <laughs> Um, yeah. And he immediately starts shelling out all the reasons he should have gotten the promotion that he had expected to get the promotion. He earned it. He deserves this promotion. Um, just everything he's been fed. He even starts citing like we had lunches, several lunches. (laughs) You were grooming me for this position. Uh, and his boss is like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You totally misread whatever situation this was. Um, and Brad is trying to get a word in it. He's like, maybe if you heard the ad campaign, you know, we're going to start it off. We got the rights to New York, New York. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what a horrible ad campaign. <laughs> we're going to have a truck coming across the New York Bridge. And it's going to be like, bum, 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 and um. He starts uh, singing it. He's like, this little town car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that David is like, Brad, shut up. <laughs> Immediately starts dunking on New York. It's like, it's a shit town. You can't like walk five feet without he says something about the crime as soon as you get out of your car you're robbed yeah blind (laughs) or whatever i resent that remark (laughs) both of them are from new york right his boss is like i'm from new york yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah Uh, which does i would say sets up the kind of recurring gang of like whenever albert brooks thinks he's getting the upper hand on something it blows up in his face Mm-hmm. this way of like he references a movie the person doesn't get he craps on new york to someone who's from new york like yeah just actively uh, getting cut down and all of shit's his on wayne newton in front yeah. of yeah. <laughs> 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 um i like i don't know how, what, what you call this but the comedy setup of where you have this sort of face-to-face like this where there's a tense conversation and then you have this sort of like lesser character that you don't, you don't even know who they are. And the, the main character doesn't know that's like off to the side that keeps like, Oh yeah. Pulling them. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Like that's, in, that's in the big Lebowski. I think of that yep. immediately yeah. with like the, the 
the whole dialogue between Maud and the dude. And then there's just that guy from like the art scene, the art house scene that's on the side doing whatever the fuck he's yeah, doing. Or, or Lebowski and Lebowski and like yeah. Brad to the side. Like, I don't know what or that's Donnie called, but and Walter yeah, and, and the dude. Yeah. Donnie, yeah, yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I do. I do like that. I don't know. There's gotta be a name for it. All these comedy bits. Something we're going to have to coin it. Everybody. We have to do it somehow, <laughs> some way. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I love Brad trying to help de-escalate the situation and just making things worse just because David's in full meltdown mode. <laughs> like at that point, I w- you would probably ask Brad to leave the office and have a private conversation, but the boss does not seem to care and is like, I can talk him down. I can handle Brad this. Brad even tries to leave and he's like, no, Brad, you stay there. You yeah. need to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So David has a full meltdown, yells at his boss tells him to go fuck himself uh it's the other american dream <laughs> the one that yes that a lot of people have probably had where they're like i'm gonna show you as soon as i don't have any ties to this company and i don't need the stability that it provides me i'm gonna fucking tell you <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah david's just had it so he i love too his rant where he's like you took eight years of my life and I want them back, starting with the things in your office. Give me that clock. I want the clock behind you. <laughs> I think it's only fair. And his boss is like, I'm calling, I'm calling security. I'm going to have to walk you out. He's like, don't even bother. I'm, I leave of my own volition. The whole time he's still yelling at him down the hallway, like, don't go to lunch with this man. He will lie to you. He'll provide you with all these fantasies. I've seen the future. It's a bald man from New York. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, um, yeah. And he... We, we don't even get like an emotional scene where he's trying to reconcile what just happened. Uh, we just get, he's been flung into this other situation and he's so spiteful about it that uh, David just decides, you know what? Fuck it. Like I've already quit my job. Um, I'm going to attribute it, th- attribute this to what Linda told me that I was too responsible and I'm going to go and tell her that I've been liberated and she needs to be liberated too. So he like drives immediately over to her place of work which is this dingy office in the middle of a department store i think something like it's in a shopping mall area mm-hmm. yeah um, she like i guess she works for in a in a yeah like a retail store macy's or jc penny or something and yeah. i like that she's in this like interior office that has a window to a hallway yeah. it's like <laughs> dimly lit too and there's like other desks in there but there's no one else there like such a yeah. lonely yeah sad existence of being in that job is like so depressing (laughs) compared to david who was just in like a a high level office that could see out he had a nice windowed office uh from which to call the mercedes dealership (laughs) and uh yeah he just he has no regard for what linda is doing how she's living her life or working um he just like wanders into that we see him in the hallway thanks to the window (laughs) Uh, well, her her coworker starts talking to her, and she's like, "Oh, how thing how are things going with the the tile?" And she's like, yeah. "I'm gonna hate this new house." Yep. Yeah, like you see, because you've seen so far, her character has just been kind of pushing off Brooks's concerns, and you know, like like whatever we decided this, we're gonna do it. Like this is not a big deal. And then you see her insecurities come through when she's not having to deal with his bullshit. Like she can vent to somebody else because it would probably be just like a toxic cycle of doom if they were both she and david were just going back and forth to each other with their you know insecurities about their decision to buy this house Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, i and that's we also get to see more of her yeah it's like her peel back for what she's really concerned about and she talks to about how they've already moved 
you know, several houses at this point. And she's like, we just, what if it's not going to be different? And her coworker's like, well, what if it is? And she's like, well, what if it's not? And her coworker says, well, then you get divorced, you know, and whatever happens, <laughs> it's just kind of like, let life take its course. Um, but she, has I feel like she should have taken that advice. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> that, that David is not, uh, the best husband. Um, <laughs> yeah. After that conversation, um, she kind of just goes back to, to work, but then David comes in and just is like, so he elated. Is so happy with himself. Yeah. So proud. He's like, you know what? I did it. You know, you said that I was, I was responsible and maybe we've been too responsible. Maybe we're too, we're too controlled. Like we need to quit our jobs. Let's fuck on this table right now. Yeah, that <laughs> I guess she's like, what? There are people around. We can't yeah. fuck in this office. And he's like, okay, there are people you can fuck in front of and there are people you can't, but we're going to find those people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David's kid. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Supposedly, yeah. that's uh, that's what made it an R rating. I was looking at that too. That they could, they could, they were okay. Like when he says "fuck you" to his boss, that's PG thirteen. But then because he says "fucking" in the context of sex here, that's oh, this, just one scene. That's all that makes this an R rated. Well, movie. they say "fuck" like a handful of times in the movie. I think in PG thirteen, you only get one, unless the rule was different in eighty five. This is when I it mean, was like yeah. flexible in the yeah. early PG thirteens. Yeah, Spaceballs was PG and had a fuck in it. Like, that's, I don't know. That's my barometer for the yeah. 80s <laughs> grading system. But yeah, uh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, they, they, he has this whole conversation. David's just like, let's just do it. You quit your job. I quit my job. I think that we got like enough in savings. We could do whatever with it. He's just fully ambitious on the amount of spite he's gotten from not getting a promotion. Um, he's convinced that they should really be free. They should be free to, to go and touch Indians is what he says, yeah. uh, <laughs> which that's, yeah. When I watched it again this time, I was like, Oh, that's not going to go over well with Ryan for sure. It doesn't go over well with me. <laughs> like, but I think in this context, there is a bit to say about David's character is already a bit unlikable. And this just adds another layer to it yeah. that I'm like, okay, <laughs> I know David is this kind of person. Yeah, because um, he, he says, like, what, touch Indians, and then he's like, see prairies, and something, he's like, everything that was in that song. All the in that song, yeah. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what song? <laughs> God Bless America? Yeah, is that the, what, like, there's From Indians the mountains to the prairies? I, I don't know. <laughs> Still touching Indians in there, yeah. No. But he, uh, yeah, and then he's he's constantly, now he starts busting out the, like, we should be, like, easy rider, you know? That's what it's going to be. He starts to kind of, like, lay that into everything that he's talking about anytime he's talking about. Yes. Um, dropping out of society. He talks about easy rider. Um, so yeah. I like, I will say that's the, he, as soon as he said that, he was like easy rider. And I was like, they got shot up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's not a good ending on that, on that. But then I, I will say that I do think that again, the concept here of like, he says easy rider, but it, they don't do anything. That's related, like easy rider, related right. It's even related to it. This, there are like idealized, easy rider like we want to live the life like easy rider but not really like yeah it's like what a middle-aged boomer who likes easy rider and has some money in his pocket would would want to do yeah (laughs) right yeah where he like waves at the guy in the motorcycle later like we're just like you and (laughs) And the guy like flips him flips him off yeah (laughs) yeah the the conversation immediately devolves into uh here's how much money we have here's what, the places we could go all the things we could do guess who went rv shopping we've hit the inflation jackpot baby yeah 
<laughs> alludes to that. Um, yeah, he's, he's talking about how they could live off of, I think they have 150,000, something like that, roughly. 145 after the RV done. purchase. Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, they have this whole grand scheme. They'll go and they, they have a party too he, where everybody's there. He wants to show off to all the people that he's going to live his life yeah, drop out of society. That, this was the scene where my my head was itching because we we heard that the uh, the Mercedes was forty four grand mm-hmm. forty five something like that yeah and then I talk about the house and eats so they they live in L A or at least around L A seemingly in L A they say the new house that they bought or that is like four hundred thousand yeah I think is something like that and he's saying that the house that they were currently in they bought for like one. 150 and they could get 140 in equity out of it when they sold so unclear you know how long they've been how much they had in the loan or whatever but like they could net 140 out of it yeah Yeah, but i was just i was just trying to imagine even like accounting for inflation and looking at it i'm like housing has gone up so much in the area because like a a four hundred thousand dollar house would be inflation wise like a 1.1 million is is what i came out to but i was like in la like that's not like they're talking be about worse, being this yeah. like amazing house or whatever. And I'm like a 1.1 million in LA is not this amazing house that they're moving up into. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you think. But yeah. Yeah. So it is. Yeah. I was just kind of like reveling in that. And then they're looking at all these. I, I do like the idea that they're looking at these places, you know, way out there where they can get two acres of land for, you know, 33 grand. And it's, in, in a lighthouse, there's a whole house in a lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he even calls there. it out. Yeah, she's like, why? Why are they that? And he's like, because they're there. Yeah. <laughs> they're <not here." laughs> and like, yes, this like, yeah, you're sure you could live out there too. But like, there's nothing there. That's why it's yeah. cheap. You're not going to have anything from the $100,000 box or whatever <laughs> where all the jobs are. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love their dropping out party too. The fact that they had a party for they're highlighting that they're dropping out from society with a cake shaped like America. Yeah. And the state like the continental U S and the States drawn on there and icing <laughs> and the worst drawing of Texas I've ever seen. Most of the States yeah. looked pretty good, but Texas was real, real. Yeah. Off. They can never Everybody really loses Texas, it. Right? Yeah. It's that hard. coastline yeah. gets rough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They need to go to a cake uh, maker that's also a cartographer, and then they could probably. Get Usually, good. people make the panhandle too big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they they have that whole party. They talk with a bunch of friends. That seeing them off, it's all celebratory. They're all so happy. We we're at the top of the roller coaster, we're like about to go down. Um, and they're like, he David announces in front of everybody. Um, yeah, I'm going to, you know, get, we're going to get married again. We're stopping Las Vegas to renew my vows to this woman here. And Linda is somehow agreeing to this and wants to do it. Um, and so they, we get like a whole sequence of them going to Las Vegas. They have a plan. They're going to go to the silver bell wedding chapel and get their vows. The cutest one that night. Um, uh, as, as a person who recently went halfway across the United States and, and back halfway across the United States in an RV, you cannot operate the microwave while you're driving. (laughs) Like it's not physically possible. It does not work that way. (laughs) Oh, well, I, maybe I was a little bit fascinated by this. There was less regulation yeah. back then, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, maybe they just let it go. <laughs> just yeah, put it in cruise control and go back and, you know, yeah, make yourself a grilled cheese. Cruise control, my yeah. good man. A microwave <laughs> cheese. You have like your 
engine for your yep. car, essentially. <laughs> you know, an RV is just like a wooden box tacked onto a truck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's that, the best way to describe it. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. The truck part runs and you get your air conditioning or whatever, just like when you have the truck on. But the rest of the vehicle, you either run off of propane or, or a generator and you don't want to have that generator on. <laughs> Yeah, while you're going. driving or and then you pull <laughs> over and plug in. So I was just trying to. Yeah. And then I was fascinated by this microwave that also toasts. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. yeah well, we said it browns. I was like, is it, it getting browns? crispy or is it just making it brown? How yeah. is that? I can't imagine putting a grilled cheese in a microwave and it coming out with and, any and sort be, of crisp to it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything but wet. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is that a technology cheese. that we had in the 80s and we've just abandoned because yes. we have like toaster ovens now or something i don't know that's something about cancer probably i don't oh, know <laughs> yeah, yeah. the amount of waves that they had to have macro waves yeah. for, the, for the browning yeah, process you have to do it i, the door I also open. like that <laughs> we jump from them like driving out of la to immediately to las vegas and i kind of was like oh i wanted to see the disaster of them driving through death valley like i, I kind of felt like oh i missed i, I thought that was more gonna be yeah. In the movie, they actually sort of just like immediately teleport from place to place mm-hmm. in this RV. Yeah. They, they drive long enough to get flipped off by a, a motorcyclist. And that's about it for the Las Vegas trip. Well, there um, he's still in the city at that because he's yeah, like, come up LA. to the front. We're crossing the city lines. This is a historic yeah. moment. Yeah. D- David's riding that high of being uh, just like Easy Rider, everybody. And <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I love when they drive into the, actual sequence where they get into Las Vegas carries some of that, that Las Vegas romance to it where um, we're getting this whole scene of this big ass RV going down the strip and all of the beautiful lights and everything just like floating by in uh, the reflection of their front windshield. Um, And they're, they're both in awe of how the majesty of gambling (laughs) and everything that comes with it. Um, I really like the way that those shots are done. A lot of the, the kind of like travel shots, they're just enough to show you what's happening. And also uh, they don't, uh, they don't feel sloppy. They feel pretty tight and clean how they're done. Um, but they get to the silver bells chapel and immediately launch into another debate over whether or not they should get married uh, at that point, because Linda's like, I'm tired. I don't know if we want to do. And uh, David's like, yeah, well, well, why don't we just go out we'll camp out under the stars and then we'll wake up at the crack of dawn, come back here and get our vows renewed. And then we'll be on our way to the American dream. We're going to follow that. And uh, Linda is pushing just a little bit more of like, well, you know, if we're really living free, shouldn't we use our money in more of a free way? We, we treat this like a real honeymoon and go stay at a hotel and uh, maybe rent a porno movie. And hey, and, hey you get, get a little frisky. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, Get the nicest yeah. bridal suite, order room That's service, right. and just fuck and, and watch porn all night. Yeah. Uh, hey, what's not to uh, what's not to like about that? A couple's gonna go indulge in that. Sure, why not? David's in for it. Um, they go to the is desert. It, inn. I did wonder: is it that she's has reservations or never bought in on David's idea, or just sort of like early trepidations? It was kind of an interesting flip that we or does she had have all this a really uh, sick gambling addiction that she's not <laughs> disclosing only, to, only twice though yeah twice. i guess or yeah i was like or was it that she's like oh i can get gambling if i can convince him to get me into the yeah, casino exactly. yeah i was wondering yeah what the motivation was that she 
She kind of reminds me of Marge Simpson a little bit in that way because (laughs) Marge is like her one vice is gambling and she, you know, will go to the casino and just waste all their money on slot machines and and shit. (laughs) And like because Linda is so reserved in every single scene of the film except the casino scene, you know, and just she's like going out of character and very, very Marge Simpson-y. Yeah, she's, well, I think she's even ensnared in the, by the claws of Gamblor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even actually, that's a really good call out because it's even in the same like Homer comes with some crazy scheme, yeah. right? Like uh-huh. Marge, let's drive across the country, and she is not interested in the in it, but goes along because like that's what she does, and she loves Homer, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. and then it inevitably blows up in all of their faces. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah can't really speak too much to the motivations leading into why they go to the desert inn, other than Linda just says she's tired. Maybe we should do it tomorrow when we're both like really aware and well rested. I can kind of see that as an excuse of like, yeah, sure. Like I'm too tired and I'm renewing my vows. How am I going to feel romance? I'm going to feel magic. Let's make a honeymoon night. Let's do the honeymoon night before we renew the vows. Sure. Why not? Um, and go to a swanky place and then we'll be on our way. Um, and, uh, they go to the desert inn. They have this whole sequence where. Uh, David tries to talk his way into a bridal suite uh, by bribing the man at the front. But he, <laughs> I love his breakdown of this because it gives the guy 50 bucks. He asks him first, do you have a bridal suite? And the guy says, no, you have an appointment now or like a reservation. And then, no, we're not going to help you. And he's like, all right. And Linda's like, give him some money. Maybe he'll do whatever. I've seen <laughs> it happen. And he gives him 50 bucks and the guy's like. Well, he says, you know what? I used to work with computers. I know these <laughs> things can be a little wonky and hard to work sometimes. Yep. Maybe this will help. But yeah. it's a 50. Relatively smooth bribe. Yeah. Uh, but the guy's like, no. And he, yeah. he just breaks and is like, look, I've never had to really do that. I'm not good at getting <laughs> leverage on these things. How much would it take for you to look? And he's like, $100. <laughs> so he's like, all right. Gives him that. And the guy's like, yeah, here we go. Here's your room. We get uh, kind of another sequence of comedy of errors where they come into the room and it's a, a junior bridal suite, which means it has two beds that are heart shaped small enough that they're, they're, they leave room for Jesus. Let's just say that. Okay. There's enough room, <laughs> two people to sleep in that room and only on those beds. Um, and even the guy, the like concierge that took him off, is like, I don't know what this fucking room is. I don't know. And David's like, does the door go to like a bigger room maybe that we can get into? And the guy's like, I don't know, man, I don't know what these rooms are. <laughs> just like leaves. They don't have a bath, which is something that Linda said that they could bathe together. They just have a shower. And he's like, all right. David's- a heart-shaped shower, which yeah. sounds incredibly inconvenient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everything in that room sounds inconvenient and looks inconvenient. And David is grinning and bearing it because this is the first day of the rest of their lives. So fuck it. Um, tomorrow, we're going to drive off into the sunset and we'll be happy and everything. Uh, and and they- I think this, yeah. like, up until here... I had liked all of the sort of comedy of errors. Like I would like to continue to see these characters like, okay, you know, here we go through the thing in Vegas and like, okay, this isn't exactly what we thought it was. And then like next place in America. And we think we'll go do this thing. And it's not what we expect it to be yeah. like, kind of like losing faith in each of these institutions. expectations or institutions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Of like, Oh, you're supposed to, this is what it's supposed to be like to elope. And nope, this is, doesn't work that way. This is what Vegas is supposed to be like. Nope. Doesn't work that way. And could have like drawn that into a few more pieces. It did feel like, and you know, the bit where he's like, 
trying to slip the guy the $50. I did really like Darla, Darla as well. The like, all right, look, what's it going to take? And Darla was like, that's what I would do. She's like, I yeah. hate haggling. Just like, tell me what you want. Just tell me how much to bribe you. We'll yeah. get me done with this. Um, like those things are funny. Like I thought kind of through all of this, those kind of things were funny, but then it, it feels like that kind of ended like that. This is the end of that act. And we kind of just moved to something else. I, I wanted to see the rest of that movie. <laughs> yeah. Cause we, yeah, we spend the David, they, they pass out. David just is like, all right, whatever. We'll just sleep. We'll go get our vows renewed. It, it's still a romantic enough junior bridal suite. Why not? Um, and then he wakes up at like six in the morning, crack of dawn to go and get these vows renewed. Turns out Linda's not in the room. Where is Linda? He goes down to the casino floor and he finds her. At the 22, baby, 22. 22, 22, 2, 2. <laughs> like, she is on a uh, very cold streak, ice cold, frigid, uh, Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what's going on? The, the pit boss is like, I need to talk to you. Yeah. Like, She's not doing well. She's on an unlucky streak. You need to talk to her and get her out of here. I love when he's like, <laughs> she's down. And he's like, how down? He's like, down. down. <laughs> you need to talk to her. Yeah. Um, and she's she's in the middle of like whatever her last chips are she gambles into and gets like 35 dollars back and uh on he's 22 like, yeah on 22 <laughs> she's like i'm uh yeah we did it and he's like are we up she's like no we're still down gotta make it back <laughs> she puts the rest on 22 and like a dude a patron at the table is like she really likes 22 like he's in it all the time um yeah she loses all that money they go she's like i lost it all everything he's like oh my god no you didn't trust touch the nest egg she's like i did he's like you didn't touch the traveler's checks and she's like uh-huh and he's like oh no <laughs> immediately um i the first time i saw this i my stomach sank like with his i was like oh no like this <laughs> this fucking turn of events here like i even if i could see it coming i still was like oh fuck that's terrifying um he takes her over to the buffet, I guess, or the dining area and sits her down at a table and they start talking about how much they've lost and it's everything except for like the $802 or whatever um, that they, they have left. Uh, which, it's like, I guess they didn't explain the concept of a nest egg, egg to you yeah. well enough. The nest egg is a very <laughs> sacred thing. <laughs> yes. David's, um, David's complete. He just does not resonate at all with the gambling addiction. He has no idea why Linda would make these decisions, but she explains it in a way that to me makes sense from her perspective. She's always been very subdued. She has not had a lot of people cheering her on and what she does. And when she won at a roulette table, apparently there was a hot crowd near her and they all gathered around and watched. And they were like, <laughs> Oh my God, she's up a hundred thousand dollars. This is amazing. And that crowd just started going. She was getting like pure euphoria from it. Uh, all off screen, all things that she tries to explain what led her to that. And David just has none of it. He's like, oh, my God, I just can't believe you lost the nest egg on it. Trying to talk about what they can recoup, how they can do things. He's like, all right, I'm going to fix this in the middle of trying to talk to her about what he's going to do. Uh, Linda starts to reach for a Kino card because <laughs> <laughs> her gambling addiction knows no bounds. Um, if you touch that Kino card, I will kill you. <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, and and this leads to uh, David's uh, major play. This is a hail mary from David. 
he is way too confident in his marketing abilities and his uh, ability to sweet talk somebody. He's really confident. Like, in- I think I can get our money back. I'll be right back. You stay here. I'm going to go get our money back. Yep. He's really confident in everybody else knowing exactly what he's going to say and that it's going <laughs> to absolutely convince them because he sits down with the pit boss. It is the pit boss, right? Or is it a different yeah. person? I think this is it like, is like the, the casino. 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 Head. casino head, he was the yeah. one that was at the the table. Like they they talk or whatever, but it's seemingly yeah. he runs the casino. Yeah. Uh and they're, they're he's like, I love that he opens this conversation with bullshit small talk where he's like, I've heard a lot about you. And he's like, from who? And he's like, Oh, all good things. Um, but you know, I just I hear you run a really great casino. Yeah, you're a very <laughs> reputable man. Uh <laughs> um, and he leads that into, you know, my wife and I have dropped out of society. This is like the second time he's used <laughs> that. He used it on the guy at the uh the uh the hotel uh steward, yeah. basically. And He's like, can we, you know, we this, we had all this money in the nest egg. And then, you know, it's just kind of, you seem to have won that from us. But uh, what if you just gave it back and <laughs> makes this whole pitch about how uh, if only they could give it back, they could turn it into a great marketing campaign to show that the Desert Inn has heart. Um, even makes up a jingle on the spot that seems to have not really any notes or anything. It's about as good (laughs) as the modern jingles I've heard today. Uh, (laughs) so we all know where the ad people are for that. Um, but yeah, the desert Inn has heart, (laughs) the desert Inn has heart. Uh, and this, uh, yeah, the casino owner is just like, this is fucking Vegas. Like, what do you expect? We have, we won your money. I I love also that he's like, you know what? You lost a lot. Uh, so your room and your food comped <laughs> on me. <laughs> he's like, no, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I think this is an interesting scene because uh, Brooks is, he keeps talking about how they've dropped out of society, right? And it seems, he seems to believe that because they have dropped out of society, they shouldn't have to have any of the responsibilities that are inherent in being part of a society, right? And so like, oh, well, yeah, well, we, accidentally lost a bunch of money in this casino but like we're not really part of this you know we're off here yeah, doing we're our not own gamblers. thing yeah you know we we didn't mean to do this you know we're not really operating in in the economy you know you should just give us our money back and he he just seems to think that they should not have to deal with any real repercussions for their actions now that they have decided to go on the lamb uh, you know, despite not, not being wanted for a crime. <laughs> yeah. And he, he even tries to cite, he brings up easy rider to this, <laughs> this guy as well. And the guy's like, I never saw it. I don't care. <laughs> he calls Wayne Newton and he says like all the schmucks who want to come see Wayne Newton. And he's like, what's wrong with that? I like Wayne Newton. What do you think I'm a schmuck? He called <laughs> me a schmuck basically. Um, he's just constantly putting his foot in his mouth, but it's all in the contrast of this romantic idealistic, uh, lifestyle. He, suddenly developed i don't even think that he did it out of nowhere but just in the back of his mind he always had it like that's that's what freedom and liberation should be the moment that his boss told him he wasn't getting the promotion kicked into high gear that oh well we we live this alternate lifestyle and you have to respect it um david has all of these expectations of people abiding by different rules that he just makes up on the spot like i earned this promotion you have to give it to me um we're not part of society. You should give us our money back. We weren't participating in society. So gambling shouldn't apply to us. Uh, constantly trying to renege and finagle his way through institutions, um, using all of this misconception and misunderstanding of what he's been sold by everything else in America. Uh, and it's, it's 
funny to watch that particular piece of tragedy play out because it's almost a, it's a comeuppance for him um, and his constant mis, misconstruing and misunderstanding of it. And the only time it works out, ironically, is with the law. And that's, yeah. that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> only because Linda. <laughs> yes, yep. only because of Linda, not because of David, because of Linda. I did like like Gary Marshall here. Uh, Penny Marshall's husband mostly, but he's, he's done uh, quite a bit of roles is usually sort of these roles where he's sort of secondary tertiary character. Um, a good job of just being visibly frustrated. Like he's letting Albert Brooks go and you can tell that he just, he has no intention. It doesn't matter what Albert Brooks is going to say, but he's somewhat humoring him somewhat just doesn't have anything else going Mm -hmm. on. You can and tell he's just, just enjoying the conversation and watching this guy at the <laughs> end of his rope just, offer horrible yes. marketing ideas. Yeah. It was very, he knows exactly what he's going to say to him. Like the moment he opens his mouth, he's like, all right, I'm going to decline whatever the fuck David's going to try to get. <laughs> Doesn't matter. David is also in his bathrobe for this entire scene because he's fresh <laughs> out of running down from the hotel room to try to find his wife. And so the casino boss is wearing a really nice suit sitting at his desk and Albert Brooks is sitting across from him in a smaller chair in a bathrobe, just begging for his nest egg back. Yeah. I, I love, I can't remember the full quote, but he says it to like the security that's downstairs. It's like, Hey man, you can't be dressed like that when you're here. And he's like, I saw this one movie. They rode a horse through here. I know it exactly <laughs> what <laughs> it's like. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, yeah. And he, he also uses, uh, he tries to use miracle on 34th street to gain leverage, trying to use film constantly to get his mm. way. And, and communicate his, his last ditch effort is the guy's like, just like, you know, good luck, be on your way and stands up miracle on 34th street. Yeah. <laughs> they gave him all the stuff back and he's like, nope, Santa Claus did that. And he's like, we well, don't we'll have get- Santa Claus. <laughs> well, we'll get him. We'll make Las Vegas a Christmas place to be. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. So the nest egg's completely lost. That conversation goes nowhere. <laughs> and uh, David's forced to 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 leave tail between his legs. Fine, sure. Um, let's go with Linda. They're they're like driving and Linda. They're driving in silence. Linda's like, just stop giving me the silent treatment. Let's talk about it. Let's be adults. And David is just so bitter about what has happened that he's like, fine, well, whatever. We're gonna go. I guess we'll make the Hoover Dam like the spot that we're gonna go to. They have a whole conversation about that, and that's where they're gonna look. Uh, try. Like Linda's trying to look on the positive side. You know, I lost all of the nest egg, but we still have each other. We have this RV for now. And uh, let's just make whatever points we were going to go to next, the points that matter. Um, David doesn't give a fuck about any of that. He doesn't give a fuck about leaving, living free. Uh, Linda's way closer to embracing the easy rider lifestyle <laughs> than David ever will be. <laughs> um, but they show up to the Hoover Dam and get out. And we have this whole segment where... Uh, Really, you get a few shots of like Hoover Dam's majesty, how big this fucking thing is and what the people that have built it. And it's immediately undercut by David <laughs> saying, do you want to jump first or should I? <laughs> like, <laughs> so fucking dark. Um, and they start having a fight right there because Linda's like, well, you know, maybe we should just go our separate ways. You take your half of the money. I'll take mine. They're yelling at each other and there are these families standing there and uh, the dad's like, oh, why don't we go get some lunch, guys? And one of the kids like, that man is yelling. <laughs> yes. I'm oh, feeling that kid ears. is reacting actually. <laughs> to the re- yeah. <laughs> it felt very real. Um, 
Yeah. And so David immediately starts berating Linda, talking to her about these things. He's just like, you know, I'm going to, why don't you go back? And Linda's like, why, why don't, let's go back in the RV so you can yell at me there. The moment they get back in, he's being very condescending. He's like, why do I want you to be punished? I think your punishment should be that you go outside and you write it on the ground a thousand times. I lost the nest egg. And then he starts doing this whole song and dance with it too, where he's like, say it with me. I lost the nest egg. I lost the nest egg. I lost the nest egg. He's really pushing Linda to her fucking breaking point. And she just gets so mad. She you can, screams you can at him. never use the words nest or egg yes. again. <laughs> <laughs> again, we get another lecture. Maybe you didn't understand the concept of the nest egg. It's like an umbrella. We sit under it. It rains on the nest egg. We don't get wet (laughs) like just this whole brooks unhinged moment um and linda is like fuck it i'm just gonna start walking she's hitchhiking out at the hoover dam and they have this whole moment where she uses easy rider against him where she's like you know uh why don't we live free like an easy rider like you've said and he's like they had a plan they sold cocaine yeah she's (laughs) like they didn't have a nest egg in easy riders like they did they had all that cocaine (laughs) (laughs) which is is not the point that he thinks he's making (laughs) um yeah just completely undercutting his own idealized romanticized image without even recognizing it no self-awareness in david (laughs) no self-awareness at all um yeah and from there linda's transported she gets picked up by somebody while she's hitchhiking and we get this the whole dude chase from Bloodsport. it's the dude from Bloodsport. uh he's also ogre from revenge of the nerds oh uh. he screamed nerds really loud huh all right yeah and he has that like burp that goes on for <laughs> cinema classic yeah. um yeah he david follows he gives chase in his rv he follows this man to surprisingly enough, he's able to find him at the gas station based on the car. Uh, and we get a whole sequence. Conveniently, they're in the middle of nowhere. So there's, yep. you know, honestly, only one car to follow, <laughs> one yeah. road to go Thankfully, down. Thankfully, <laughs> he was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, this wouldn't have worked in L.A. They, should, yeah. they have that cool shot where he's chasing the car up like the side of a mountain. And there's one like it's the same road, Static but shot. he's going one direction on the screen. And like above him, the car is going the other direction because the road is like winding around yeah. the, the mountainside. I really do like that sequence. It's it adds it's got its own comedic value to it and mm. how they appear and disappear. Yeah, they are, are visually separating from each other. Yeah. Emotionally. <laughs> um, they get to a little diner and David comes in and is like really trying to pull Linda back. And the guy um, whoever the nameless guy is that she's with is like, Hey buddy, she won't talk to you. Uh, David's like, well, you know, it's, it's a private affair, like between me and my wife, why don't you mind your own business? The guy's like, all right, buddy, that's it. I'm gonna give you the count of three. And then I'm gonna take you outside and beat the shit out of you. David keeps fucking running his mouth thinking he can get out of it. And the guy's like, this all right, dude is go. fucking huge. Yeah. Yeah. He just fucking grabs him and walks him out. And he's like, I'm gonna, you, you represent everything that I hate. I'm gonna <laughs> fucking take you down. Starts chasing David in circles around the RV while Linda screams, like, stop it. Professional managerial class motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Linda's screaming, call the police, and somebody goes and does it. And the guy's like, You're lucky that I've got like warrants out for my arrest. (laughs) Or I'd (laughs) stick around. He's like, I'm going to find you, man. I'm going to finish what I started. (laughs) Fucking leaves. They they get into the RV, and and he's like, Wait a minute. What was he wanted for? What did he do? And Linda goes, Well, 
to hear the way he tells it, those two guys were dead when he got there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh man, um, that, was, that was probably the joke that I laughed at the most. Yeah, that was pretty movie. funny. <laughs> Great reveal. Uh, yeah, and David got punched in the face in the process of all of this. Has a bloody had a bloody nose. Has recovered from it. Um, and now they're on their way. They're back on the road. They bonded over this uh, hilarious emasculation of David. Uh, especially Linda enjoys it. She gets a good laugh out of how many times he ran circles around the RV. <laughs> David snaps and it's like, don't laugh at me, please. Like just really frustrated. Um, but yeah, this is this, I think that this is also when the, the cop shows up, right? They're driving, they're talking about whatever they're on their way to yeah, Arizona. He, get, he gets mm. pulled over. They have the choice between Arizona and New Mexico. That's how much gas they have and, and like how much money they have for gas. Um, yeah. He says some comment about, yeah, she was saying where to go and he makes some comment about, do you know how much it takes? How much it costs to fill up a Winnebago? Yeah. I was like, how oh, much does man. it cost, Ryan? Uh, well, I was going to say, I felt that, but I also know that gas prices are way higher now than oh, they yeah. were then. <laughs> and like, it was probably a decent amount then, but it was very painful to drive across the country in an RV. <laughs> how much How much was the bill to fill up a full tank of gas so, in an RV? Yeah, I don't know how many people know that the gas tank uh, has a cap when you uh, how much money you can pull in oh, one really? go at a gas station. <laughs> it's at different amounts at different gas stations. I know it, that because uh, I hit the cap in gallons or dollars? In dollars. There's hmm. like a max dollar amount that you can't fill at one time. And there were a couple places in like small towns where that cap wasn't particularly high. And I had to, <laughs> I hit the cap like twice and then got to finish filling up the tank. So wow. yeah, a lot of like easily 200 or more gas Jeez. tanks. How many gallons was, was the tank? Do you know? Uh, it was a pretty decent tank size because um, I only had to fill. So from Austin to L.A., I really only had to fill it twice, mm. which is pretty good, especially with like, the size and lack of gas efficiency that yeah. an RV yeah. has. So and that was like a 27 foot, almost 30 foot, something like that it was pretty big. Everybody out there can do the math. You'll figure yeah, it you, out. Yeah, you figure it out. Austin, <laughs> LA, how many It miles? was in part of my equation of all the... By the way, I pretty much had that same thing where he sits down and he's like, all right, we can do this and we this and we sell this. Yep. We had conversations back and forth. We knew we were moving out to LA, but we had conversations back and forth for like a month between flying and having the car shipped and like having to fly with the dogs and how to get the dogs to the airport. And it was like all this back and forth and I was working out like what all that was going to cost. And then I had somehow had this crazy idea of like, well, we can rent an RV. And then I was like, this is how much it'll cost. This is how much the overage on the mileage is and the gas and like worked all that out. And it actually crazily at the end of all of it, the RV, even having to drive it back was cheaper than flights for four people and dogs. And I still could never figure out how the fuck to get four dogs to and from <laughs> airports. Damn. <laughs> You just leave them behind. Just let it release yeah. them into the wild. Let them go. Yeah. <laughs> let them hunt. Do a homeward bound. They'll find their way there. Yeah. <laughs> they made three of those. I know that the animals can find their way home now. <laughs> well, if they if they don't get run over by a train, then, oh. then they make it home. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, too. <laughs> um, Where the fuck were we again? I got distracted or distracted. Uh, distracted. Arizona. They're headed to Arizona. The cop pulls them oh, over. Oh, yeah. The cop pulls them over oh, the on the way to Arizona. Over. They're going 85. 
I believe. And he's like, I don't think this even goes that fast. Uh, <laughs> I think your radar must I, be I on. I think he's yeah. right. Well, we yeah. have a a, an, a metal ladder. They warned us this would happen. Uh, fucking David's excuses, trying to weasel his way out it's of It's like, we get cable. We don't even want it. <laughs> yeah. And I love his exchange, too, where he's like, how much is this going to cost exactly? And the cop's like, about 150 something like that. And he's like. Oh, we can't pay. Well, that. we don't have that. Yeah, yeah we, we don't, don't have, have that. that. <laughs> it's like this isn't at the like shop. Like we can't just haggle this. Um, but yeah, Linda comes out. First of all, David's told to stay in the vehicle. He gets out to try to persuade the cop. This isn't his first rodeo. The cop like doesn't give a fuck about whatever David's saying. But then Linda comes out of nowhere with a clutch move of asking, "Did you see Easy Rider?" <laughs> Which, and David goes, it's not, that doesn't work. I already tried it. I've tried it several times. <laughs> it doesn't work on anybody else. And this cop in particular is like, what did you just ask? And she's like, easy rider. He immediately starts fanboying. He's like, yeah, I saw he's, that's what inspired me to become a, a motorcycle cop. And like <laughs> talking about all this shit. Um, it's kind of funny to hear somebody who watched a movie about motorcyclists who deal cocaine and have a tragic end, uh, decide to become a cop who rides on a motorcycle. He's just like the motorcycle. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean. It's the same. <laughs> thing as david you're like cherry picking the moral and the message <laughs> and david immediately latches on to that of like well we, you know we we're trying to do that you know we, we dropped out of society and all this stuff and the cops like wow you know and then they start bonding over scenes you know film connects people uh and this is a great scene of film connecting people <laughs> their, their the conversation is so surface level though he's like you remember that one scene oh yeah that was a great scene you remember this scene oh yeah what awesome scene. That's what did he say about, he said something about Jack Nicholson too, where he's like, it wasn't even supposed to be in that thing. And yeah. it's like, Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Very surface level conversation of film. Um, it's funny because it lends into, of course, during our taxi driver episode, we talked about the dorm room poster theory. This is pre dorm room poster, uh, in like a, not pre like, but like in the nineties, I think of as when really that starts to become accelerated mm. when you're sharing more and more of these things. But, but I feel like it's that kind of movie that, that same, like yeah. young people in 1969 mm-hmm. fell in love with this movie, like young dudes. Yeah, and yeah. Idolized the on the road lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Did they, if they'd had like movie posters cheap to put in dorm rooms, would it be like Easy Rider, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Yep. Yeah. Like there's this like misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just kind of epitomizes that. And it's from two different perspectives, too. Like the cop became the cop on the motorcycle because of Easy Rider. And David supposedly quit his job and told his boss to fuck off so he could do the easy rider thing. Um, both trying to do it on their own terms, not really carrying it to fruition. Thankfully, I guess too, <laughs> to what the movie was about. Um, but yeah, uh, just that kind of comedic moment. The cop like tears up the ticket and is like, you kids get on out of here. <laughs> <laughs> David goes, are you, are you, you know, can you, oh, that'd be great if you could not give us the ticket. He goes, would Dennis Hopper give Peter Fonda a ticket? <laughs> He's like, he couldn't find Dennis Hopper. <laughs> the cop's like, all right, you guy, <laughs> you. Uh, yeah. And they're back like right on the road. It's just. <laughs> and they stop in like the next town that they find. Like, let's just live here. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they pull into an RV park that's for, I guess, retired old people, it seems. <laughs> I think that's yeah. what all RV parks are for. Yeah, really, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, they set up shop there, and immediately their plan of action is, okay, well, tomorrow we're both going to go get jobs, try to figure out what we're going to do. And David is convinced that he will get a job. Uh, even before he makes this statement to Linda, he's like, 
pretty convinced he'll get a job no matter what in this town. So they're like, okay, we'll go get jobs. He's like, I bet I'll get a job so, before you do. And yeah, some competitive couples kind of, I thought it was kind of a cute moment between them where he was kind of like, hey, you know, we can do this. But I also saw the underwriting of it that David still thinks that he's better than Linda at a lot of the shit that he does. Um, this is like the third day when they yeah. go to get a job, right? Like day <laughs> yeah, one, they, they drive to Vegas. Yep. Day two is like Vegas, the damn. And then driving here, the Arizona, yeah, problems to, to Arizona, the and then they wake up and get just so I'm like, they really only had two days without jobs, and they have, they have <laughs> before they're right back to like, too. okay, well, we need to go get work, right? And they're like, <laughs> all right, back to the system. Yeah, they they clearly they have some kind of sex, I think, the night that night or whatever, because Linda makes breakfast for David, and then it's like last night was wonderful. And I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if Linda's just praising him or what the fuck happened, but <laughs> they, they had some kind of nice night, I guess, after that cop let them off. They did have a light, nice moment after the cop let them off where they, yeah. they kissed for the first time since yeah. the, you know, the explosion. And uh, David turns to Linda and says, you're up 140. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Um yeah, and then they both go their separate ways. We're still following for, for most of the film. We follow David, so continue on that path and follow him into town as he walks into like a pharmacy that has delivery man needed on the sign, the front sign. He goes in and is like, "Well, you need a delivery man. I am here. What do you need?" And the guy's like, "Well, do you have your own car?" And he's like, "No." Uh, and the guy's like, "Well, you kind of need a car." And he's like, "Well, I have an RV. I drive that." I was like, that's not really going to, you're going to probably eat more work. of your money than you're actually going to make. <laughs> um, but just another point of like David being super out of touch with anything that he thought he was trying to do uh, in his adventurous lifestyle. Um, and the, he's like, do you know of any high paying jobs nearby? The pharmacist is like, no, <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't. And they have a whole kind of conversation so about that. Something where he's like, I, I don't know of any high paying jobs in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Something. <laughs> like, Sends him to the unemployment office, um, to get maybe some work. And we follow David over to there and he sits in one of my favorite scenes, it's him <laughs> talking to the unemployment officer. He's trying to like find him a job. And, uh, the guy is just like, well, you know, um, what are your qualifications? And David runs through like the full gauntlet of what he's worked. He's like, well, you know, do you know, uh, this, this one advertising firm? Well, they're like the biggest advertising firm. And I did things for them on an executive level. And, uh, what about, and then before that I did this other job and then I worked a catering job for three months and then back in high school. And the guy's like, you don't have to tell me what I you worked did at a stuffed school. fruit yeah. company. <laughs> yeah. What are they stuffing into fruits? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it could be. Uh, I just love that the guy's like, you really don't have to tell me that far back. I just need to know what you currently are experienced with. And then proceeds to be like, well, what we have, what's your salary range? He's like, a oh, hundred thousand is what I got paid. That guy is not prepared for that at all. <laughs> um, and it reminds me very much of, uh, again, to go to the big Lebowski the scene where the dude's like, Hey man, do you have any like uh, uh promising uh leads or anything? And the cop that he's talking to is like, Leads? Sure, I'll just check with the boys down at the crime lab. They got like eight more of us working on this. They got us working in shifts. Like that same kind of like, how fucking out of touch are you in the system? Um, but the guy's like, We don't we don't have anything that's in your job, your salary range, which what we have you wouldn't be interested in. It's a crossing guard. 
pays like five bucks an hour and you get your own benefits and the benefits are that you get a ride to and from the cross. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess that means the school bus would pick him up. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's probably what it is. Uh, yeah. And then he's like, well, do you have anything in like the, like a hundred thousand dollar box or something that you have some kind of executive opportunities, just completely out of touch with the job market in that area and what things are actually going to pay and what jobs and opportunities you actually have in the small town. Um, yeah. He gets laughed out of that office, uh, goes home completely defeated and finds out that Linda has made, uh, has has assistant a promising manager, yeah she's got assistant manager everybody um we don't know where yet and we'll find out but for now they're like okay cool she's like i don't want to say anything else because the manager said he would sleep on it and uh i don't want to jinx it i'm really superstitious about it so let's just celebrate that i got the opportunity and then uh you know tomorrow you can do whatever you're gonna do and david's taking his job as crossing guard um so he gets to go work at a corner waving kids and parents across the street, some punks on bikes too, that mock him. Um, and like he, that those kids like mock him and ride around him, but they also wait for him to actually initiate like, out there to, to let them job. through. Yeah. They're yeah. like, come on, do your job, do your job. And I'm like, do they care enough <laughs> to, to actually wait on the crossing guard? Like they're yeah. not that bad. Of kids to just be like, ah, fuck the crossing guard and go across. They're like, no, we still wait for you to come across and then we can hassle you. I love that sequence too, because he, like David just is at the end of his rope of giving a fuck about any of the things that he's doing. He just doesn't respect the crossing guard job either. I was watching this movie with my dad when, uh, when uh, for this time. And my dad was like, that's a pretty cushy job. I would love that job to sit on a corner get your benefits for you. Hey, you just got to get up occasionally and stop people. And I was like, man, my dad's like counting his blessings over here. And David just doesn't (laughs) give a shit about this. Um, yeah. And then to have him kind of go through, uh, uh, I love that sequence where he's like, come on through to the car across the street. He's like, kill the kids. (laughs) Kill the child. Run them over. Oh man. Um, yeah. And after a hard day of sitting at a street corner and waving people through, well, he first of all he sees his dream he's reminded of the real american dream that he was following before yeah, all the, this the bullshit dark happened. brown bins dark brown bins with the beige interior is that leather on the inside yeah of <laughs> course it's leather what do you think uh and yeah this guy driving through that's asking for directions he's lost he needs to get to la he wants to go back to to where david's stomping ground was um david gives him directions Smells his interior, interrupts the yeah, guy. Yeah, like creepily of smells him. <laughs> what, what are you doing? Whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> um, and then before he leaves, David asks him, do you like this car? And the guy says, what's not to like? And then just drives off smooth <laughs> Maybe as Maybe the shit brown color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't even think you can really get a dark brown car anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think they really want. Yeah. Do you remember? So, they used to come in like purple. Wow. Like seems like when minivans started coming out, there was this like plum color. Yeah. yeah. Like all the minivans were <laughs> that. Yeah. Like, like a, some like of those. Toyota Previa. I, yeah. I don't know why, but I remember in, and okay, this is going to be a share from college. This is old John speaking, not current John speaking, but 
I had this dream car that was just going to be an Impala that was a dark purple. It was basically a pimp mobile. Sure. Let's just call it what it is <laughs> that had fuzzy dice and like leopard kind of pattern interior. <laughs> well, I, for some reason, I thought it was a cool car. <laughs> you wanted like the purple drink color. Yes, like, exactly. Know. Yeah. The, <laughs> Uh, that was that was my David's version of car, I guess. I don't even know what that <laughs> sentence was, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. And so David's like, this fucking car is great. It reminds him of the dream he gave up uh, all those days back. <laughs> I can smell my old life slipping away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and so he resolves, um, I've, I've got a plan now. I know what my kind of plan is going to be. He's thinking on it. Uh, he goes home. But uh, Linda, you know, she's got an assistant manager job. Let's find out what that is. When he arrives at the RV, she is dressed in her assistant manager attire, which is from Der Wiener Schnitzel, uh, where she is the assistant manager now. And the manager was in the bathroom of the RV. He's fascinated with where all of the waste goes in an <laughs> RV park because he's a fucking high school kid. <laughs> Unclear if uh, they were fucking in the RV before Albert Brooks yeah, showed up. Yeah, why is he there? Yeah, just, ne they never really discussed that. Brooks is very skeptical, but they just doesn't pry into it. Yeah. yeah. I, in, in my opinion, I think Linda innocently was like, oh, well, you should meet my husband. You're the manager. You'd like come and show it. Tell him about how great I am at work. Like <laughs> one of those things where Linda's always kind of like downtrodden and uh, um, David overlooks all of her achievements. So if somebody else who's in a position of authority says I'm doing a good job, maybe he'll actually believe that I'm good at things that I can do. It's, it's a tragic kind of note for me to interpret it that way, but I feel like that's yeah. where it comes from because the moment he starts talking, whoever this kid is talking to David, he's just like, man, your wife, she's so sharp. Uh, today we were cooking these fries in the oil and she said, Hey, I think these are frozen. And I held them up to the light and I saw frozen bits in it. And she was right. That's that kind of attention to detail that she has. <laughs> it's like, you're so lucky to have her. He goes, we have this deep fryer and we don't know, we don't really know how to use it, but right. we use it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so that whole reveal itself, just that's what her. How long was this place selling frozen fries to customers with no customers <laughs> bringing it up? Right? Just nobody gave a shit. <laughs> They're <laughs> buying at Dervener Schnitzel. They really can't make much of an argument. I'm yeah. sure. I've I've wondered. I, I joke with my kids every time we go buy a Long John Silvers, and I'm like, "Who's eating? <laughs> like, who honestly?" in their right mind is eating at Long John Silver's anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like I, the same thing, like some wiener schnitzel place out, you know, the, the hot dog place out in Arizona that's being run by kids that don't know how the fryer works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure fast food in general, you know, is pretty gross. Like I had to audit a taco bueno once and it was like the most disgusting mm. thing that I, I've ever seen. It's like inventory the back and their refrigerator was broken and so they had all of their like meat and lettuce and stuff and cheese in plastic bags sitting in tubs of ice that the ice had melted completely. Uh, and it was real, real fucking gross. That's fucking um, And I it, like everything, like, the floor was so dirty. I was like, I'm never eating a Taco Bueno again. And I haven't since. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure if I like, if you like peel back the veil of any fast food establishment, it's horrifying. But, um, you know, I haven't had the, uh, the pleasure of working at a fast food place, but that, that's the closest that I got. But, uh, I, I, I always imagine that fast food fish just seems like a terrible idea, right? Like Long John, oh, yeah. Long John Silver's like it's... the McDonald's filet o fish or, or whatever. I'm just like, no, I'm not, I'm not ordering 
fast food fish. That's where I draw the line. Like fast food beef and chicken, I'll do it, but uh, you know, not 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 getting the fish. That's, yeah, the fish is that's like uh, yeah, you're buying sushi rolls or like a tuna sandwich at a gas station. Yeah, like that's the kind of level I think. But yeah, yes. Oh man, uh, yeah. So we reveal the manager is way younger than either of them, and it's the manager of Derviner Schnitzel. And he just wants to hang out and watch Flintstones uh, in the RV. <laughs> yeah, he's just um, fascinated by the whole concept of the RV. And he's, he's like, like, oh, that's so yeah. cool. You guys dropped out of society. I might do that when I get old. <laughs> yes, that line. Um, yeah, David's like, cool, nice. Well, whatever. I need to talk with my wife real quick. Do you mind? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he goes and sits down and just watches the Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and at that point, we get basically like the wrap up of this movie, which is that David's like, I've been thinking and I, I've got a plan. And um, th- at the same time, Linda's like, I was kind of thinking, too. I feel like I've got a plan. Same wavelength, because they immediately are kind of like um, <laughs> he's uh, David's like, I want to hear your plan. I'm not going to talk about my plan first. Talk. And Linda's like, well, I think that maybe we, we give this up and we go to New York and David cuts her off and is like, and I eat shit. And she just goes, yes. And he's like, my plan too. <laughs> they fucking go. And we get, uh, the actual song of New York, New York, uh, song the, by Sinatra Frank Sinatra, the Sinatra, not the version, not the Liza Minnelli version, not the Liza Minnelli. Yeah. The Sinatra version. We watched them drive all across America to go back to New York so that David could eat shit. They park in like the hardest space to park in New York yeah. somehow. Happened to track down that random New York ad executive yep, on Brad, the side of the road. Brad's there. Uh, <laughs> and immediately um, David sets to trying to schmooze his way back into the advertising scene with Brad uh, saying that it was all just a joke. He was kidding. It was fine, whatever. And then we're treated, treated to the outro title crawl. Uh, which basically says that Brad got his job back at like 33% uh, less than what he had before. But better medical benefits. Better medical <laughs> benefits, yeah. Um, and that the that Linda and David are expecting their first child. And so that like, it also says like, if anybody else has the courage to drop out, uh, we pray that you go through Utah and avoid Nevada altogether. <laughs> Um, just to, to spare yourself the drama and tragedy of losing the nest egg. And I feel like that joke didn't work very yeah. well at, at the end, but I do think that last scene is interesting because it's a very tragic scene where they're like, fuck it, we failed entirely. We're going to have to go hat in hand to New York, beg for the old job back. He gets it at a huge salary decrease. Like He probably has no chance of ever getting that senior vice president job now that he has you know done this much damage at the company. But they're playing New York, New York, which is such a triumphant song and yep. it's building and getting more joyful as you're seeing this incredibly tragic scene play out. It's a very interesting way to end the movie, I think. Yeah. Also the expense of shooting on location after this movie's done of mm-hmm. all of these towns that they drive through. Yeah. I was kind of surprised by yeah, that. For like 60 seconds. The extra yeah, mile. Yeah. Of like, Literally. of the most inefficient route from Arizona to New York <laughs> <laughs> to hit as many major cities as we can. Yeah. Get all those billboards and signs in that montage. So, you know, yeah. they traveled America. They're salt of the earth. These uh, upper mid <laughs> middle class <laughs> people. Unclear how they paid for the gas. Yeah. Uh, all of that money from Dervener Schnitzel, I guess. One day, <laughs> one day of Dervener uh, <laughs> Schnitzeling and cross guarding. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, 
Uh, and so ends the tale of Lost in America. Um, they're found again. Uh, as long as they play within the rules and they live within the institution and they don't drop out of society, they can live comfortably-ish, maybe. Um, they have their firstborn, so obviously they must have some kind of financial backing to, to make that decision. Who knows? But yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Up to our eyeballs in debt. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's right. <laughs> like every good American, especially yeah. since they have uh, uh, some pretty nice... Uh, crashing markets coming their way in the uh-huh. near future. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, I I think the end of the movie seems to trying to be pushing this idea that you know, like corporate America is this evil oppressive institution and like you know, you try to leave it, but you can't like you kind of have to play the game that is presented in front of you and and come back into it. But I I think the the whole losing the nest egg thing just kind of throws a wrench into that idea and that message and i don't know if that is what brooks is trying to say with the film but it feels like that's what that last scene is trying to get across like the rat race sucks and it's just america is a fucking treadmill and you have to run on it and there aren't any other options you can't just decide to get off but um i feel like the message feels a little hollow when like those characters had the opportunity to actually try to live a separate life and and squandered it I feel like there's a counter blessings sort of undercurrent to a lot of it that is in that. Like, I mean, so we look at that from the perspective of, you know, middle-class upper middle-class mentality of like, well, you have your retirement, you have all these things, but the entire question throughout the movie that I asked was like, well, David never gives consideration to the fact that other people are actually in this situation without the choice, without Mm -hmm. this kind of circumstance. Mm -hmm. And the entire time, he whinges and complains and never acknowledges that anybody else is suffering through this, that anybody else has to suffer through this kind of like poverty line and yeah. uh, trying to look for these jobs. And I feel like that is more of Brooks's biting commentary that he wants is like less about, you know, well, even if you drop out in middle class, you can't make it. It's more like there's like no nets really underneath any of this when you right. get to that point. Yeah. We have How no social you? safety nets in America. And he, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not, really being empathetic or paying attention to the people in that small Arizona town that have to have these crossing guard and assistant manager jobs at, at fast food places. Right. And they, yeah, they, they have, they're forced to keep running the rat race because there are no other options. Yeah. But you never get to really see them and experience their sort of life. That I feel Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was going to say what, right. When we were, you're like how, how it wraps up. I'm like, this is a very baby boomer white privilege. Yep. Movie yeah. that they can like quote drop out and still have this much right, available and to right them and, and then be okay, get right back in and they're fine, right? And that uh, his hundred thousand dollar job would be a two hundred and seventy five thousand dollar job today, yeah. Like he's was stupidly well off, right? Anyway, um, the and that I do feel like if it was trying to be a biting commentary about that, we never got the juxtaposition of him complaining about something against someone who has no way to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Like what I would point to is uh, white Lotus, which I think the second season is coming out soon on HBO. Yeah. Like is exactly that. Yeah. It is like they go to this, you know, resort in Hawaii, prey on the local people who can't get out of their situations, complain about how horrible their life is, learn nothing and return back. And like, I, it nails that commentary 
yeah. and that I don't even know that this one even necessarily attempts that commentary. Yeah. What do you think, either of you guys, what do you think the movie is trying to say? Because like, it's called Lost in America. It feels like it is, uh, Brooks is trying to make a statement about capitalism or Reaganism or America or, or, you know, the corporate ladder or whatever he's trying to say, but it just feels so jumbled that I don't know that there's a coherent, you know, kind of, uh, ideology coming out of the film. And, you know, that's not to say that there needs to be, but, um, curious what, what, like, what is your main takeaway from, from the film that you think Brooks is trying to say? I'll go first. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I feel like a lot of what Brooks is saying, it doesn't have like a, a obviously clear statement to your point. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything here that particularly really jumps out at you, which is why we're trying to share what we each think it is. But in this, the kind of bitterness, the contrast between the characters constantly referencing these idealized and romanticized versions of what they think their lifestyle should be like within America juxtaposed with what they actually are going through and how they seem to never acknowledge their circumstances or the fact that other people might even share their circumstances. They're more concerned with trying to get out of what they're currently in than they are with trying to actually learn how to live within the means that they currently have Um, is to me, the criticism that you're sold at any level in America, you're sold a particular dream of what you're supposed to get to next of how you're supposed to consume. And when you get to that level, then you'll feel fulfillment. That's like the game that you're locked into. And some people play it by choice and some people don't. And the people who play it by choice seem to forget about that and have these wild, wacky adventures that they try to write off later as like, oh, that was just, you know, a phase. I'm sure that, you know, once David gets his marketing job back, um, he's immediately like, yeah, we did this whole thing where we kind of tried to live. And he probably spins that into this whole other arc of um, impressiveness to his resume and his repertoire of like, yeah, well, you know, I told my boss to go screw himself. We roughed and do it. Stuff. Yeah, we roughed <laughs> it. We were, we were out there and we didn't know what we were going to do, but we made it, you know, we're here. Um, still that thing of like keeping up appearances and living your life based on something else that you're sold in uh, packaging, fancy packaging told to, to live to. Um, and so I felt like it was more of Brooks uh, having a fun time while drawing attention to kind of what is being marketed and sold. And that's also, again, like height of Reaganism. That's like the, we're going to make America, we're, America great. We're going to make America great again. We're gonna do that was a Reagan things. slogan, make America yeah, great again. There yeah. you go. And it's just that thing of like, here's the dream that you're sold. Here's what we're trying to fight for. Here's the nostalgia you have for where you were and what you're doing. And it even opens with that whole reflection on, you know, movies yeah, the fountainhead was great because it had you know only this reservation to it and this aggrandizing aspect of things so i don't know i felt and like that no was, sex yeah that was that was more <laughs> of uh of, of what i got from it um ryan curious what you thought yeah i kind of saw the like especially with all the constant mention of easy rider e- easy rider is a is a hippie movie right mm-hmm. of like we're actually getting out of the system we can't get along with cops. We can't get along with corporate jobs. Like we, we, there's no place for us. Right. And that's eventually like there literally is no place. And then they're killed for just not wanting to be part of everything else. And I feel like this is then the like, Oh, remember hippies? Like now they're yuppies, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what happened Mm -hmm. in the eighties is all the hippies ended up just getting jobs, selling themselves to the man 
there's some amount of disillusionment with the yuppies, not maybe, maybe not to the degree that our generation, like millennials, late, late Gen Xers and millennials now have of like the baby boomers lied to us too. Mm -hmm. Um, they're like, they just gave up on that hippie dream. Like, I feel like at the beginning, they're like, you know, I feel like my life is stale. We hear from Linda, this sort of like, we said we were going to do these things right before we, when we were younger, we talked about doing these kind of things that we just never ended up doing. And they have this opportunity to actually live the hippie ideal, live that freedom. And they don't. Right. And that's like, that's exactly like the opportunity that the baby boomers had to actually change the world, to potentially break the system, this huge new generation that wasn't blinded by the way things had always been, right? Is open to like somewhat the horrors of the world, but also the freedoms that could come from that. And then they just become <laughs> the people in the eighties and the excess of the eighties yeah. and just give it all up. And like, that's, I feel like that is kind of what this is. I don't know that Brooks is necessarily like saying that per se, or just like, this is the lens of what easy rider mm -hmm. was supposed to be. And this is actually where we're at. We're not that at all. Like we couldn't survive it. Um, just yeah that, that that's kind of what i saw that's interesting i think those are both uh pretty good takes on on kind of the themes of the film and um yeah they're, they're like there's a lot of interesting stuff in here i just i feel like i don't know and it's like the more that we talk about it i was like there is good writing in here i don't know if it's as sharp as i would like it to be i kind of wish there were maybe more jokes in it and less whining but i think part of it is that Brooks is playing this character in such a whiny, sad sack way that just grates on me so much. And like he is that's clearly his idea of what this character should be. But like like you're saying earlier, Ryan, like if Bill Murray was playing this character, maybe this is a little bit more watchable in some of these scenes and kind of recounting the things that happen in the scenes. I'm like, oh, yeah, ha. you know, I'm laughing at them in retrospect. But during the movie, I wasn't. And I think there's just something where there's a lot of great ideas here, but the delivery of the film just didn't entirely work for me. I think the like talking about the comedy aspect when, when he comes down and Linda's like betting, betting everything on 22 and she's like, mm -hmm. so gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The way that Julie Haggerty is playing it where she's just completely like lost it in, in the bit of her, like reaching for the keynote card and the, what is it she says? It's like, I've only gambled twice, and this is the second time. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, I blew it all before, too. <laughs> like, she has some kind of problem. That was the comedy where you take it the, like, one step past. So it moves from, like, this is something that could happen to, like, yeah, it could kind of happen, but this pushes it to, like, an extreme to make it funny. And, and I feel like it never, so many of the other bits didn't quite get to that. Right. Where it's like she goes with the hitchhiker and then he gets in a fight. It, it just kind of is what could happen. And like each of these steps of like he goes to get the job and it just is the job that can happen. Like it never ends up like in, instead of being a crossing guard, if he took some completely unbelievable job mm -hmm. that they're paying someone from that's completely demeaning. Right. Like push the comedy more to that extreme. I think that would have been better it's sort of sedated for what it is. And that's why I was like, it doesn't necessarily bite. It it just sort of is there. Mm -hmm. Wait, you want to like, I'm thinking of like crossing guard for ducks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. So it's something like, yeah, completely. Um, 
I'm thinking, you know, not a good movie, but like in The Hangover, the whole point is like just everything goes to shit, like all their expectations or whatever. But the comedy is pushed like way over the edge there, right? Of like, okay, now it's Mike Tyson and a tiger. <laughs> he punches me out. Like you pushed it to like, this couldn't have happened. Mm. Like, right, it's unbelievable. So the same thing if like, we're going to go see parts of America and have this like, our life is so screwed up by all these things. Push it to where it's like, that couldn't have happened. That's still, that's so crazy. Yeah. But it's like, even the room that they go to, I'm like, why are there two beds in a bridal suite? And I'm like, okay, it wasn't that weird, right? Yeah. It just sort of was like, that sucks. Yeah. The junior bridal suite with the small beds. Yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of like, yeah, I would say I, I totally get that as a critique of uh, very subdued sort of circumstances that are disappointing or um, real letdowns for the characters that don't create quite a drastic contrast in their situation. Um, I think that that's what Brooks attempts to make up with David as a character is to really emphasize that to us, that's not a big drop, but to David, that is a huge gap. Um, and that's where he's attempting to bring this contrast up the interesting attempt to use a character to do the heavy lifting for circumstances that are not as outrageous. Um, but yeah, to, to y'all's point, it, I can definitely see it being more grading than it is actually effective, um, for, for character work. It actually, thinking about it now, it kind of reminds me of like my issues with Seinfeld. Like I know lots of people love Seinfeld and I'm in the vast minority for not liking Seinfeld. Um, but to me, it's like, it's, you know, every episode is like Jerry coming up with a, an interesting situation that he like noticed about society and just pointing at it and being like, isn't that weird? And like, there's not a lot of jokes in the show. And it's like just rich people whining kind of the whole time, you know, like Jerry and George and, uh elaine just like complaining and whining and stuff and i'm like i don't i don't really get this show and, and i know that that's uh, a very unpopular opinion um but i'm I'm kind of like i'm picking up on that same feeling when i watch an episode of seinfeld is when i watch uh lost in america mm. i feel like there are yeah. there are smarter ideas here in lost in, in america but yeah that almost a shorter episode of like elaine we'll be off the grid we're off yeah. the grid elaine it's like uh -huh. easy rider yeah right and then it's like you blew all our money like, uh, yeah. <laughs> how could you do that kramer it was uh, a nest egg kramer nest egg <laughs> right like, yeah, yeah you're exactly totally, but but it if it was seinfeld it would go one step further like that's mm -hmm. always the piece is seinfeld caps mm -hmm. it with something that then all of it comes crashing together in some way that you're like, oh, okay, all right, what, whatever. Like it, it pushes over the top. Yeah. It's, it's effectively Seinfeld has a similar theme in the fact that it's the characters undoing, like they establish a, an expected rule or some kind of tradition within society that is part of their observation. They make the subjective objective. And that's usually what ends up being um, the main conflict of the entire movie. It's like, they, they go, Elaine goes on a date with somebody and then that person ends up being, you know, a mouth breather or something. And they make a whole deal out mm. of that being a big mm. contentious problem. And it ruins every other good aspect, it just paves away, uh, over anything that you can take as, you know, a, a blessing. And the characters here do a similar thing of like, Linda's always trying to uplift them and David's always trying to oppress them, push them down. Um, always wanting more and never being satisfied with what he has at any point in his life. Um, 
this movie actually when i watched it again this time i had a minor crisis when i was like oh god wait am i am i at that stage or am i not and the fact that it made me kind of think about it i was like is that the commentary that's kind of reaching me of because there have been times in my life where i know i've for sure been like all right i'm just gonna be here for you know another year and then after that i'm on to whatever's next and it's gonna be bigger and better and all of these things and uh it's only been recent that i've kind of been like all right for like creative purposes, I'm going to be working on this thing for a little bit longer and then I'll get to this step of it. You know, like I'm only going to do this Schlocktober this year. It's a little bit better than last year. Next year is going to be great. But in the middle of Schlocktober, I'm also like, do I even want to do Schlocktober? What the fuck am I doing with this? <laughs> um, but th- there's those kinds How of How many times does that happen during the middle of Schlocktober where you're like, that, what that am I doing with my life? constantly <laughs> recurring, but there's too many Schlocktober features to make me really stick and think about it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that, that was kind of where, uh, I ended up taking it. I totally get that Seinfeld comparison though. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, all of those things considered Dixon, you already said you kind of gave it an unenthusiastic thumb up. Uh, I would recommend it to folks. I, I find it to be, it's not the most memorable movie maybe for all for me. I really, it was my first Albert Brooks movie. It got me into watching other Albert Brooks films. Cause I do like the way he plays with, I've, it's been one of those things where I was thinking of, we didn't actually compare him at all to Woody Allen. Um, despite Woody Allen's yeah. characters and movies kind of having that same, I've won a neurotic character has to be obsessed about this thing. That's a good point. Kind of things. I do yeah. like Woody Allen better. Um, and, and now I'm going to get canceled for, for saying that, Ooh. but, um, Sorry, <laughs> I, I, I think that his characters are more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess there, there's a lot of similarities there for sure. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where like, I am very into somebody trying to represent themselves that, you know, like I've watched so many movies of you know, Tommy Wiseau cast himself in the room as the tragic character. Neil Breen is the hero of every movie that he's been in. Um, all of these kind of indie directors that are writer director combos that go in and they aggrandize themselves. And in any Brooks movie I've seen, he's never likable. Mm. And I, I like that for some reason. I really appreciate somebody who's willing to write a character that they get to ham up, but also be despicable in a way that I feel is criticizing a certain persona that they want to, they want to tackle. They want to tackle the romantic and modern romance. The person that's taken these ideals too far. They want to tackle the yuppie in, uh, you know, lost in America. And they, I guess want to tackle Albert Brooks and finding comedy in the Muslim world. I don't know how that that one worked out. (laughs) I don't don't know what's Uh, going on there. We read that one off. Uh, (laughs) Um, or even early Albert Brooks, which I think his first movie is uh, Real Life or something like that is what's called 69 or 67. I can't remember when. Um, but yeah, he plays himself and it's a much more Hollywood hotshot style version. And it's all meant to just make him out to be a shitty Hollywood type that really doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And I just appreciate that self-deprecation that he brings. So um, that's kind of where I've, I'm going with it. Uh, I, I really dig it would recommend it from that angle. Um, Ryan, would you recommend it? Yeah, I I know. (laughs) Um, I think it's like passable, but I don't think it's worth like going out of the way at all to see it. I didn't think it was that great. It's certainly not. Yeah. It's not comedy in the Muslim world. It's not that like bad. It's not bad. There really is. It's, you know, it's totally watchable. I think it's fine. I do think, yeah, as like, if he's the villain, it's not satisfying that he doesn't get any comeuppance and it's not presented it as a way where you necessarily feel like it's a downer ending then. Yeah. They're like, Oh, the villain won. 
like you just kind of are left with like, oh, they just they didn't learn anything. They went back. That's what Darla was like. They didn't learn anything. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no. And I was like, I think that kind of is the point. But I don't mm-hmm. feel like it really hammered that home either to make it clear of like, hey, they're not learning anything. And like, I felt like that, that suck for clear. you. Or, I think it is clear, but it doesn't like push it to a biting level of either you feel afterwards of like it sucks you're that angry. they didn't. Yeah, you're yeah. angry that the villain didn't like right. Yeah, either like the, either or like uh, yes, yeah. yes. Either at the end you should be like, ha, the villain got their comeuppance, or God, I'm so angry the villain didn't get their comeuppance. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you need to come away with a with a strong emotion one way or another. And like, yeah, I kind of walked away being like. Were they good people? Were they bad people? Like, I don't know. And like, they didn't learn anything. I wish they had learned something, but I don't feel that bad that they didn't. I don't really care. Like, I didn't, I don't know. I just didn't come away with like a strong enough emotion about it. And I feel like the same thing. If, if the comedy had been excellent through all of it, I would have been like fine with it. But like thinking of like Christmas vacation, like shit all blows up in his face, but he gets his boss at the end. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's this come up and sort of like, okay, things now they're probably not going to work out for the Griswolds anyway, but like he got his one thing, like, right. <laughs> and uh, here it's just sort of like, he got it, I guess. And he, you know, he got something anyway. It didn't really matter. Like even at a 33% lower rate, he's still better off than, you know, 99% of the world. Like does it, right. So it's just sort of that, like, I guess, okay. I don't know. So that's right. Yeah. I just didn't feel like I got a, a strong enough direction out of it. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I think that's part of the, point of the film right is that they are just products of the american system and like the uh this you know concept almost religion or ideology of the american dream and like striving and having to keep moving forward is kind of keeping them from learning anything because it's shrouding all of their decision making and they're kind of unable to see past that um but i I mean i see what you're saying but yeah, I mean, I, I I would recommend it. I think you know, I I was, didn't like really enjoy watching it, but I think it has a lot of interesting ideas in it and leads to fun conversations like this to talk through these different ideas of yeah what America is and um you know how we can avoid uh you know falling into these types of traps. Yep. Uh, well, there you have it, everybody. We have a recommend from me, a uh, not recommend from Ryan. I wouldn't say it's a refute. I don't know. I don't know how hard you want to go. Yeah, right. it's binary. You got to pick yeah, one or the really, other. Yeah. Well, then it's whatever the not is whatever well, not recommend. Go. He's a refute <laughs> amend. No. <laughs> uh, and then we have a recommend from Dixon. Uh, and with that, we're going to drop out of society and take a break. <laughs> Movies. They have the power to transport you to other worlds to help you see life through different perspectives, and to make dark days just a little bit brighter. But sometimes, the transformational power of cinema can feel a bit muted when experienced in the abject loneliness of your own home through a phone, laptop, or your sad joke of a television. But alas, for generations, this has been the only way to consume these artistic masterworks. If only there were a better way. Introducing Movie Theaters. Come see the latest and greatest films on absurdly large screens through booming speakers with hundreds of fellow movie fans communally experiencing every shock, awe, laugh, and cry right alongside you. 
The greatest technological advancement of the 19th century is finally here, and it's affordable on any budget. Once you see a movie in a theater, you'll never go back to watching them at home again. Movie tickets are reasonably priced, but concessions may cost an arm and or leg. Please consult your financial advisor before spending $9 on a small bag of popcorn. Welcome back, everybody, to Recommend or Refute. You know the rules of the game. We go around the table. We tell you about a movie that you should spend some time with, maybe this weekend. Or we tell you about one that you should avoid, maybe for your life. Uh, I, as the picker, have the uh, honor of telling you about this movie that I would not recommend. Um, but I did have fun watching. It was a good time. Uh, me and Dixon, we Dixon was kind enough to offer some of his time for me during Schlocktober to come and watch a movie <laughs> uh, called Shriek of the Mutilated, which is not the movie I'm talking about right now. That got to give John some yeah. mental support during uh, <laughs> during Schlocktober. We are we are living in the past right now. We are still in Schlocktober, even though you listening to this are in November now. That's but. right. I'm on the tail end of it, the, <laughs> the, thick, the thick of things. I've made it through most of it, and I would say, I can't remember what your barometer is. It's Enid's sanity level from sensor. Where yeah, am at I? At the start of the movie to the end of the yeah. movie. Yes. Uh, I've unfortunately never approached the point of killing somebody with an axe and insisting uh, that somebody else was my sibling. There's still some time them. left, John. It's true. I could lose my mind soon enough. Um, but uh, the movie that we watched after the movie. But, that but you're crazy enough watch. to follow him into the wood. Like you're crazy yeah. enough to go all the way to the woods. Just not. <laughs> yeah. I would say that I, right now I'm in the audition segment uh, where I yeah, have a camera okay, pointed okay. on me with a bright light in my face. <laughs> oh, wow, uh, and I'm okay. demanding to know where my sister is. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so Dixon joined me for Shriek of the Mutilated and he was treated to a double feature that was impromptu. Thankfully, he was able to stay for the uh, later feature. Which, Shriek of the Mutilated, spoiler alert, is about Bigfoot. <laughs> it's, yes. Uh, um, for any anybody who's interested in what Shriek of the Mutilated looks like in a condensed version, you can go to notutpod.space slash schlocktober slash 2022. And I've got my little compilation loaded up there. You can find it. Highly um, recommend checking it out. John's edits are hilarious. <laughs> condensing an hour and a half terrible movie into five hilarious minutes. Uh, I highly recommend checking that out. Trying to save everybody out there some time. And I'm, I'm really toying with the idea of watching all of them as one big edit as my final oh, thing God. for Schlocktober. <laughs> just, just to see if I remember. Schlock movie. Yes. <laughs> to feature if, length. If I even remember what I watched. Um, so the movie we watched after we watched Shriek of the Mutilated was a 1991, um, uh, American Giallo, I guess, if you want to call it that. I don't know. It kind of went for it with only one of the murders was as absurd as a Giallo would truly be. Um, but uh, it was 1991's All-American Murder, directed by Anson Williams, starring Christopher Walken for a portion of it. He's top build, but he's not, he's in, not it in the movie that much. That much. Uh, yeah. Um, with uh, Charlie Schlatter is, uh, I think, the main character. Um and a bunch of other folks. Richard Kind is in this film as well. Um, the premise is there is Ar Artie Logan, the, the main character, is the new guy on campus. Um, he has gone to several other schools before this like private school he's going to. And in all of them, he's had some kind of offense that he's committed. The most recent one, there was like arson. 
and he swears he didn't, uh, you know, those two guys were dead when he got there. That's kind of the, 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 the gist of it. He, he burned, he didn't burn that building down. Somebody else did. Um, he's a loner. They, they killed outsider. his cat, right? Wasn't yeah, that it? Something some, like that. Something like that. And he's a loner. Um, he has a, a pet snake, pet spiders, I think too, or something. Um, that's, that's kind of how you know he's an outsider. And in this new school, he, uh, falls in love with the prettiest uh, girl that he sees, and she just happens to be the president of the most popular sorority on campus. She's never done wrong, uh, as far as we know. And right when he's about to go on his first ever date with her, he shows up to the sorority house and she falls off the balcony in complete flames and just the corpse burns to the ground and he's framed for murder. Christopher Walken is the detective assigned to his case and decides to not do the right police work protocol and instead <laughs> says you have 24 hours. I'm sorry. Let me try to do my walk in here. You have 24 hours to clear your name uh, as best you can. And that's, for, that's pretty like, good. John. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and Ar Artie is like, what the fuck do you mean? I have 24 hours. Um, but like the clock's already ticking. He has to go and basically run down the list of suspects, do all of the police work for Chris Walken, who in most of the scenes just plays basketball uh, <laughs> as Richard kind and his friends, like his coworkers look on and talk about how guilty Artie is. He talks about how great he was in high school at basketball and he shoots the ball with two hands. Like <laughs> he does like grandma shots. And no shit. one taught him how to shoot a basketball for the movie. And no one thought to think, Hey, maybe, you know, that doesn't look right. Maybe we should talk to Chris. He also like tells stories that go nowhere, but everybody else seems to act as if they know exactly what he's saying. It just doesn't make any sense. The important thing was I had an onion on my belt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's this kind of uh, thriller that's set against really unrealistic circumstances. There's no way that they would let a flight risk go and investigate their own case and try to clear their name. Uh, and yet Chris Walken does this for Artie. Um, and it's full of a bunch of who is it? Who could it possibly be? And a really dumb twist that I, I have one of us called, uh, by the end of it. And I don't even remember if I just threw out, like, I was like, it's gotta be this, or maybe it's this. I think I had just calibrated like three times. <laughs> and then finally it was like, all right, it's this bullshit. Um, and it was, uh, probably the best part of this movie was you're not going to, you're not going to spoil the twist. I don't want to spoil the twist for anybody out there. Who's really curious about it. It it's fun in a bad way. I found, mm. I found it our, our watching experience. The score is completely um, removed from the rest of the movie <laughs> because uh, in the midst of all of this murder and other shit is a score that sounds like it's for family matters. So it just <laughs> constantly is like this upbeat sitcom sort of shit. Um, and they're really proud of it, too. Like, I think even in the opening credits, they say like original score by this person. And I was mm -hmm. like, man, they're really happy with what they made. Um yeah, so by the end of it, the best part was that at one point, Christopher Walken is saved by Artie uh, from, from getting his face burned off by a flamethrower. Um, th that's its own thing. And he just turns to Artie and he's like, you saved my face. I love my face. <laughs> it's, it's a fucking great delivery. Uh, just had us laughing out loud when we saw it. Um, yeah, the the... Uh, if you're familiar with like the thriller structure of any of these kinds of movies, somebody has to clear their name, you know, it's kind of like the fugitive in a way um, there's that same kind of tension to it. 
but it's coupled with the fact that you have a character who's not a detective doing detective work who over the course of the movie becomes pro- progressively more and more jaded and detective like, like he becomes like a grizzled cop by the end. Artie, this college <laughs> student is saying all this shit. That's really cynical. And every time that he shows up trying to prove his innocence, somebody else gets murdered and he's kind of put in that spotlight for it. Sorry, everybody. That's a bit of a spoiler there, but <sighs> you pick up on that really early on anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. If you're looking for a movie that has kind of the beats of a giallo combined with this thriller aspect and you're looking for something bad to watch with your friends, it was pretty fun. It had its moments of stupidity that were amusing, but uh, it's not something that I'm like, this is great overall, like go check it out kind of thing. So that's my, my wishy-washy refute. I would agree with that. It's fun to watch with friends and to, to make fun of it. Um, I, Christopher Walken is in this movie for like 36 to 48 hours of movie time and he does not sleep and he wears the same outfit the entire movie uh and he just like you know he's given the the lead character 24 hours to solve his own crime right like he's not doing the detective work and he just shows up every few hours he's just like in the guy's apartment like how'd you get in here he's just sitting there he's like you got 17 hours yeah (laughs) he like wastes an hour of his life talking to him it's like now you got 16 hours fucking sense of keeps showing up randomly at places where this guy is and just announcing how much time he has left till he arrests him unless he solves his own crime he's like outsourcing his police work to the suspect yeah. i think that chris walken the laziest is, policeman ever i think he's quiet quitting i think and that's, that's honestly what it is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so there you go uh yeah ryan um i don't know if i would i i was trying to think if i should recommend it to you or not but i really don't know how you would feel about yeah, it no, being a know. giallo fan you'd probably be very disappointed yeah if there's not like kills to put it over the top feels there's like it's only missing. one kill yeah. that really puts it over the top and that kill has about literally two seconds of frame footage that are gory and actually that absurd level and it was just gone yeah. immediately i was very disappointed in that yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of sounds like somebody watched. It feels like the American, like you know, those like anime adaptations that that America does that they don't have no clue what the original material was. This is oh, like, yeah. oh, I like these Jalo movies. Let's bring one to an American audience and get rid of all the things that make it. Yep, <laughs> a Jalo. Right. Just keep the weird bits. Yeah, exactly. So, um, all right. Well, Ryan, what do you got for us? Cool. I uh, I I was out of town last week. So I had a chance to watch a lot of movies and I, I did. And I had things that are kind of like, okay, there were some good things or some okay things. And the more I wanted to make a passing comment about a movie before talking about something else, I couldn't not let it go. It is hard to describe how bad the monsters was <laughs> that, <laughs> oh, God. That, that I feel like I have to talk about it now. Cause I couldn't just be like, Hey, I, 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 it was wow. so bad. I We're wanted really to say it was this. so bad. It's directed but, <laughs> by Rob Zombie before you even get to it. Dixon. <laughs> it is his Rob Zombie's only not R rated movie. Uh, oh, this I don't, is new. Yep. Yeah. It just came I've never out. I've heard of this. Like I know every movie that's out. I've never heard of this. Yeah. It's on. Tubi? Netflix? No, I'm <laughs> yeah, Tubi? It's on some streaming platform that paid, oh. I'm sure paid Rob Zombie. If it's not said, in theaters, I'm less aware. Right. Oh TV. yeah, no, it does not deserve to be in theaters. Um, Yeah, I have the impression that some streaming company, I'm already forgetting what I watched it on, was like tr- in the scramble to get things onto their platform, said, hey, uh, Rob Zombie, you're a known name. 
I don't know for good reasons, because I really can't point and be like, hey, here's this great Rob Zombie movie. It feels like he kind of keeps getting work. Um, I can point to some great Rob Zombie songs, but uh, and then they were like, what do you want to do? <laughs> Whatever you want to do. And he's like, oh, you have the right to the, the Munsters. I want to do that. And I can just see the executive that's sitting there like dabbling between really the Munsters and Rob Zombie. But they're both named properties. I can't let it go because I just know as an executive, that's what I want is to jam some named properties together. That's exactly also, what makes they've money. They've been making those animated Adams Family movies recently. Oh, so I bet yeah, they're like, oh, those too. made money. Let's Hell just yeah. do, let's do the Munsters and capitalize Yeah, it's our turn this. again. Yeah. Mm. Um, this, the Munsters, it was always, I feel like, a second rate show and it definitely a second rate Adams family. Uh they had a like a ton of made for TV movies that I remember. Mm-hmm. Most of them still had the original cast, but there were like a few even somewhat relatively recently that just had new cast. And this is exactly like the the shitty everybody's watching network television so we can put on whatever. We have to kind of fill up <laughs> network TV time. Here's the Sunday family movie. It's the Munsters Christmas special. Mm-hmm. It, it, this isn't a Christmas. Story. I'm just saying that kind of shit that, that they were like, Hey, it it's that it would be pretty fitting as that, which is not good and not worth doing in today's time where mm-hmm. you can, like you have money and you have resources. Uh, why <laughs> like do that? You can even do something cheap that would be decent. Like why do something cheap and then just have it be shitty. Like it felt like it got slapped together so quickly. And it also falls into that trap that you guys know I hate of like explaining the backstory for things that don't need it and I don't give a shit and I shouldn't have to give a shit. Like, yeah, so this absolutely is uh, all the way up to the start of the Munsters television show. Like all the questions you ever ask, like, how did they get there? How did Herman Munster get created? Oh, no, George you know, Lucas like, yeah, why do they have a creature in their stairs? Uh, like all things where I'm like, I don't care. Like that's not the that's not the fun part of the monsters is wondering about these backstories that I need filled in. I'm not surprised coming from a man who felt like he needed to explain to me why Michael Myers was fucked up. He's pure evil. Like I know Rob, he's pure evil. I don't need to know what he was like as a child. I don't need to hear him talk. He's pure evil. <laughs> Like the the same thing here is like we get this backstory of like Herman Munster and like him going on dates with uh, Lily. And but the the real the real kicker is like there's no tension. There's no risk. There's so essentially there's no plot. Like it just kind of is like things happen to just check off the boxes of everything you need to know about the Munsters. Hot that we referenced all the things great the show can start now like i I, yeah even my kids at the end of it were like why like what what, is netflix making a monsters tv series is that no i don't think so especially with as terrible as this is i think no one wants to touch it (laughs) um yeah no it yeah it it mostly it's a wank of those that it introduces even more questions like the, the the me sitting there watching it now has more questions than i had when I started, but by answering things, you made it worse because like all takes place in a Transylvania where everything is completely normal, like everything the monsters are or do or whatever is completely normal. And then as soon as they go out into the world, 
everyone is like horrified and has no clue how to deal with them. I'm like, there's a whole, the whole of Romania is filled <laughs> with monsters and robots and vampires and shit that no one blinks an eye. But then you come to the United States and I guess we've just never heard of it. Yeah. Things like that. That just bothered me way too much. Um, we've never searched Romania for oil. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Wait, is this um, an allegory for America's fear of immigrants? Their lack of, <laughs> yes, their lack of understanding of immigrants. Herman, a monster story. It's really what it sounds like. Yeah. So. Um, it mainly the plot revolves around the fact that uh, I don't even know if this is a real thing because I don't really pay attention to the monsters, but I guess Grandpa Vampire, his daughter <laughs> Lily, uh-huh. uh, apparently. He has another son that's a werewolf. Uh, sure. The monster's genealogy never made any sense anyway, so that Whatever. doesn't bother me. Yeah, uh, he, he's a he's a down and out and owes some money, and so he's trying to he, he's working on this scheme to steal the castle out from underneath Grandpa to then have the money that he owes some gypsy. Okay. <laughs> uh, apparently, yeah, and. Uh, he ends up winning this scheme by having Herman Munster sign away the castle because now that he's married into the family, like he can sign away the rights. And I, I'm I like, I don't think that ever legally made sense. <laughs> like, uh, Doesn't seem like I'm like, cold water. yeah. And then immediately it's like, they're just like, oh, well, we're poor now. Like everything's gone. Which I'm like, no, he just bought the castle. Like, I don't like I, I was so bothered by that. And then it's just literally Herman Munster's is like, we could move to Hollywood and everyone goes, okay. And so they do. They're freaked out by the people that live around them being normal humans. But then the werewolf comes back and he's like, I bet all the money in Vegas and now we're millionaires. Everyone throws (laughs) the money in the air and that's the end of the movie. Like it was solved that that was like the, Oh, now they're rich. So they don't, they don't care that there's regular humans. Like it just immediately ends. Wow. Huh? 22, so, yeah. 22, 22. Yeah, 22. pretty much. Yeah, there was a werewolf somewhere just like betting. <laughs> Except it worked out for him. Dude, he won um, the nest egg. <laughs> yeah. I get the feeling that everybody like watched the show and their their impressions are like relatively on, but in a way that like has no heart. They're just like, this is what Fred Gwine sounded like. So I'll do that. This is what Al Lewis sounded like. So I'll say that. Um, someone went ham on this sets and i feel really bad that they're in this horrible thing that probably no one's gonna watch because that actually was good like all the set work all the like crazy stuff to fill up this castle and their house and things like that all great wasted (laughs) on everything else also main actresses rob zombie's wife make of that what you will Gotcha. It fe- it feels like an insurance scam. I've seen the uh, I've seen the cinematography from the trailer as well, and I'm very disinterested in the like the shoddy production of it. It really doesn't. Yeah. Have, there's no depth to anything, but it also doesn't feel like a sitcom. Like pick a style and try to go for it. Don't just do all digital flat. Is what it felt like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which gives it that weird impression of like, since it's just digital with nothing on top of it, it gives you that like hyper realistic. The soap opera kind of soap opera look. Yes. Mm -hmm. That that doesn't fit. Right. Especially when they're like, everyone is makeuped up. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And the sets are kind of over the top and it's supposed to be in the past. That yeah, Yeah. It feels weird. And then we throw in some Dutch angles like, eh. (laughs) <laughs> to do them 
there's a couple times where they do the like comedic effect of like uh, <laughs> all I can think of is the creep show could think as I was watching the red letter media by the creep show. But like where you have the like effects behind them, almost like comic book effects behind somebody. Yeah. They do it like twice and they forget about it. And they do some weird like transitions between between scenes. But again, like twice and they forget about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, either go all in on that, like all crazy effects, stupid transitions just like go all on that. It never decided like, is it campy or are we like trying to do something or whatever? It never went far enough. Oh. Um, yeah. And I just like, it's been so long, like getting Herman and Lily together that I don't care. Like we all know that's going to happen before it got to the like fish out of water part that it instantly resolved that I, I like thought back on the Adams family movies, not the cartoons, the, the, good the ones. 90s ones, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That like that, they quickly got to the get the Adams family out of the house. Look how fucking funny this is. Yeah. Right. Like that's if you want to do that, that's the movie. Like just <laughs> spend all the time on that. Um, or if it's a romance, like make it that and make their tension about whether they'll get together or not. Yeah. It just like it was a series of events. It was so terrible. It's hard to describe how bad it was. Well, that's available on Netflix, everybody. So uh, yeah. check it out. <laughs> I'll let you know when the TV show comes out. I'll watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. <laughs> By all means, <laughs> become a lore master for the monsters. New handle. Yeah, I'm surprised, Ryan, that you weren't going to challenge yourself to watch all of the monsters made for TV movies leading up to this. But I might time. go back and watch them because they're probably better. I've watched some like back in the day, like yeah, and I vaguely remember. It, it's, not, it's interesting. You don't have to do like, the rank and best thing, right? You really don't. No, 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 I'm not. I'm I'm not doing that with the monsters. <laughs> I'm gonna pick something else. The monsters was created by the people that made Leave It to Beaver, mm, um, which I feel like is a really lot. weird. Yeah, that like transition from like Leave It to Beaver to be like, uh well, nobody's into those anymore. Now we're doing this, these weird things like, yeah, I can, yeah, I get it, but it's weird. I don't know. I'm going to go back and watch some shellacky old TV show. It's not going to be the monsters yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, much as like Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis are wonderful, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there you have it, everybody. That's a refute for the monsters movie directed by Rob Zombie. Who would have thought that that wouldn't uh, pan out? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Dixon, what do you have for us? Cool. Yeah. So, uh, I have a recommend. So, uh, you know, Ooh. ending this on a high note. Um, I saw a movie in theaters this past week, uh, called Triangle of Sadness, which won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Uh, it is directed by Ruben Osland, who this is actually his second Palm d'Or winning film. Uh, the previous one was The Square from 2017 that I saw when that came out. I thought it was okay. Um, there's some similar ideas between that movie and Triangle of Sadness, but I thought Triangle of Sadness was a big improvement on the square. Um, he also directed Force Majeure in 2014, which may be what he's most known for. Um, I haven't seen that, but I've heard it's very good. But um, Triangle of Sadness is a comedy um, kind of eviscerating uh, rich people in modern uh, society. And uh, it stars uh, these two models slash Instagram influencers who are young and attractive and they're trying out for, you know, model photo shoots and, uh, you know, posting stuff on Instagram. And it's kind of analyzing the environment they live in and their relationship a little bit. And the first act of the movie kind of focuses on the two of them as they're kind of trying to live a modern 
uh, male female relationship and kind of uh, trying to figure out how to, you know, kind of navigate gender roles in 2022. And there's some interesting and some funny stuff there, but I feel like it's the first act kind of drags a little bit long. But once it gets to the second act, um, holy shit, like some of the funniest stuff I've seen in a long time in the second act of the movie. Um, they get, uh, a free cruise because they're Instagram influencers. So the cruise company wants them to, you know, post about their, their cruise. It's a pretty small, uh, cruise boat. It's like a large luxury yacht. And it's all of these incredibly wealthy people that are on this yacht. And we get a shot when they arrive on the yacht of the crew and the manager talking to the crew and telling them all, you have to say yes to every single request that the guests ask of you. Uh, whatever it is, you say yes. You don't sit, tell no. Don't say no to anyone. I don't care if it's legal. You do it. Uh, like really, just catering to these absurdly rich people. Um, Woody Harrelson plays the yacht captain. He's uh, really the only like recognizable international actor that's in it, and he is incredible in the the role as like a drunken socialist yacht captain who like doesn't give a fuck about anything and just wants to like hide in his room all day and let his first mate do all the work um there is a russian capitalist who uh is a fertilizer salesman and he really wants to get into arguments with woody harrelson about capitalism versus socialism (laughs) on the luxury yacht and uh it's just it's it's this hilarious dynamic where you have these completely out of touch wealthy millionaires and billionaires interacting with these working class staff members and just like telling them to do absurd things and they have to do it um shit hits the fan and it gets pretty crazy as it goes on um i felt like the third act dragged a little bit too there's some funny stuff there and some really interesting ideas that uh, the movie kind of gets across but the second act of the movie is so good. It's one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. There are lots of jokes in it that I will not soon forget. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Uh, but not everything I thought worked super well. I feel like it, the movie could have benefited from an edit and it kind of being trimmed up a little bit. But overall, the thing is absolutely fucking hilarious. And um, I, I think it's definitely worth uh, everybody going to see. Very... Uh, eviscerating analysis of like the wealth gap globally across the world right now and kind of how that that plays out in society nice yeah i want to go see it so i'm excited um that's uh that's enough for me to get out and go to a theater and check it out yeah nice sweet um well there you have it everybody uh that's two refutes and a recommend you have a refute for all american murder don't see it unless you're gonna watch it with friends and probably mock it a bit or do some Chris Walken impressions. Why not? <laughs> um, and then you have the monsters, which is streaming on Netflix. Uh, if you already have Netflix, don't watch the monsters. <laughs> still don't, still don't, don't. If you don't, already have yeah. Netflix, cancel your subscription. Yeah. <laughs> Send <laughs> them a message. <laughs> yeah. Protest with your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rob zombie must be stopped. Evil dies tonight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh and then you have uh triangle of sadness which is a recommend uh good kind of uh uh, biting commentary there sounds like and some fun moments Mm -hmm. um but yeah uh and with that i guess we will draw things to a close here at the underground table uh thanks for joining us again for another great episode uh in my opinion it was a great episode i don't know about y'all um uh, (laughs) loved it it's been fun work guys yeah good job everybody 
High fives all around. Um, <laughs> I have been your host, John Garcia, with me as always. Uh, Ryan King. Have you guys seen Easy Rider? No, I haven't. <laughs> Easy I have seen Easy Rider. I, I actually haven't. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, would Dennis Hopper see Easy Rider? That's my question to you, Ryan. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, he doesn't watch movies. Uh, and That's for Michael the Dixon. man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks for putting uh, up with our bullshit. Hey, did you know you can follow us on social? Myself, I find it annoying, like you. But science says this works, so sit down and listen. Unless you're on your morning run, then run on and listen. We're on Twitter and Instagram at N-O-T-U-T-Pod. Those are platforms fellow kids use these days. Did I mention I work for a social media company and a major messaging platform? If you're an older housewife, check us out on our Facebook page. Feel free to hit us up at Knights of the Underground Table at gmail.com. Let us know if there's something you'd like us to review. I'm old enough to remember when Gmail wasn't a thing. Please leave us a voicemail on Anchor. Actually, check those things. We'd love to hear from you. Check out the episode description for more detail. Subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review on that favorite platform. Our overlords need to reinforce their self-delusion that they're providing a non-evil product. <laughs>